Episode 6 of the Off The X Podcast. I am Cody. Tonight I talk to Jeff Carlson, also a former diplomatic security special agent and friend of mine. Uh, Jeff served in the Miami field office. He did, he did some time in Tripoli, in Muscat, Oman, in Kabul, Afghanistan, and ended his time in the Seattle resident office where he and I first met protecting Prince Andrew. We talk about that a little bit. Um, Jeff's a great storyteller. We actually spent nearly oh over two hours. This is the first podcast where I had to edit a bit, and that's because we had to have some breaks. Um, we were sitting down for chatting, uh, sitting down chatting for a while. So uh, anyway, great podcast. I think you'll enjoy it. I want to touch on a few things. Uh, number one, feedback. If people have feedback on these podcasts, hit me up, info at codyperron.com. Someone has already wrote to me about describing the acronyms, valid point. I'm trying to get better about that. I am also interjecting when my guests are talking and asking them to explain some acronyms. So slowly, we're improving. Someone else said that I should keep podcasts to 30 minutes. I'm not always going to take your advice. I think podcasts can go on as long as we need them to. You can listen to it on multiple occasions. And with people have so much experience, we should not have to cut them short. Um, and so that's what I'm doing. I'm just allowing people to talk. Uh, still learning, talking over people here and there, something I need to work on. Um, I'm using some new technology. This is a new, a new microphone, and I'm hoping that the sound quality is better. I think it is. Um, so we're going to work through those things. Lastly, the podcast, the style of the podcast. I know some people like different styles. This one is quite casual. I actually, the last several podcasts, I said, hey, let's have a drink. And I'd like to do that. I want it to be like we're sitting around a campfire telling a story. And that's hopefully what we're getting out of this. I know there are podcasts out there, very formal, very serious, very well edited. Not mine. But, uh, you know, I want mine to be more casual. Like if I'm sitting in person and we're just talking shit. And we do. And in this one, there are some curse words. So if your ears are sensitive... Either, you know, take it with a grain of salt or you may not want to listen. But um, that's just how dudes talk sometimes in uh, our industry or our former industries. Uh, not everyone, not everyone uses the F-bomb as frequently and liberally as we do. But uh, it does happen and sometimes um, it's there for emphasis. So, Jeff did a fantastic job, and I'm really thankful he came on the podcast, and I think you all will enjoy. So without further ado, Jeff Carlson, we'll catch y'all on the backside. Thanks, y'all. Out. Round two. Let's get it going. Um, Jeff Carlson, welcome, my friend. We tried this recently, and we both failed. And you had a hard ass for for those listening, we had a great hour. And, it's like and, an hour uh, and a half, dude. It was a long time. Yeah, we went it was back a lot. Yeah, for a long time. Yeah, if you count chatting before and after, it was a while. Uh, so anyway, man, let's get into it. Um, tell us, Jeffrey, about yourself. Tell us what you did before um, DS and kind yeah. of your path to get to DS. So um, I was... Uh, I grew up in Seattle, around Seattle, and um, I played baseball in college before 
uh, before all of this. And then nine 11 happened and I decided that I was going to join the military like a good young Patriot that I was, uh, it seemed like thing to do, man, you know, um, <clears throat> at the time, uh, you know, I'm not sure, uh, where most of your listeners or you were at when nine 11 happened, but, uh, I was playing baseball in college and it hit me like a ton of bricks, man. And I thought to myself, like, you know, basically what the fuck are you doing? You got to, you got to go do something. You got to make a difference. You got to, you can't be a slug and just sit on the sidelines. So, uh, I finished that year and then, uh, promptly as soon as I was over, uh, went and joined the coast guard. Um, so I spent see almost eight and a half years in the coast guard. Uh, yeah, it was good. It was a good time, man. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's definitely, it's one of those services, you know, we all bust each other's balls and, uh, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of rivalry between, uh, inner service. Um, and I think looking back on it now, uh, you know, I might've made a de- like a different decision knowing what I know now, but, uh, I'll tell you that I never would have gotten to be a DS agent had I not been in the coast guard first for sure. 100%. Yeah. You did some really cool shit in the coast guard though. I mean, you, uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, uh, your time in Iraq and things you did in the coast. Yeah. So I was pretty fortunate. Um, I went to a tactical law enforcement unit and we did counter drug stuff and we were enforcing the embargo, uh, out in the Persian Gulf. So for like 2000, when I got there in 2003, um, I was gone, dude, I was gone like 220 days, uh, my first year at this tactical law enforcement unit. And it was, it was like teams of eight, eight of us. And we would deploy on uh us Navy, British Navy or Dutch Navy ships. And we were doing just counter drug stuff in either the Caribbean or the Eastern Pacific. And, uh, it was wild, man. Like, I mean, you know, there was, there was, uh, there were deployments that we took where we had, I think it was something, it was incredible, man. It was like 125 metric tons of dope. I mean, just astronomical amounts of, you know, $350 million worth of dope sitting in the, in the torpedo magazine inside on this, you know, U S frigate out in the middle of the Eastern Pacific sailing around. Um, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty fun, man. And, uh, it was, uh, I still, I still keep up with some of my buddies and they, you know, they moved on out of the coast guard. A good, a real good buddy of mine now is, uh, he, is a DEA agent. And we laugh about it because it's like, you know, we were pirates, dude. Like it was, it was one of those things like in a team of eight, you know, you're on a allied Navy ship, right? So you're kind of like, uh, you're caught on your own a little bit. And, uh, man, we would hit these ports of call. It was every two weeks, you know, you'd hit a port of call for like three days and it was just an absolute disaster. Like those first three days was just a, it was a blur. Um, but then you'd go right back out and it was just, you know, it was boarding after boarding after boarding after boarding. And, um, you know, we worked really hard, but we played really, really hard too. And it was, uh, it was, it was really fun, man. I had a good time. So we did, uh, I did a lot of counter drug stuff. Um, in 2005, I went to, uh, spent the first, say I left here like in February. Um, and we actually went to the Horn of Africa for like three months uh, we sailed from Bahrain down through the Straits of Hormuz and down to the Horn of Africa, uh, went to Camp Lemonnier, which is a Marine Corps reserve Marine Corps camp down there in, in Djibouti. Pretty good time. Pretty funny stuff happening down there. 
Uh, like to party. Though, dude, it was, yeah, there was like a, it was, we got to Camp Lemonnier and, uh, I mean, it was when they say like Africa hot, this was like, you know, just, it was the epitome of Africa hot. So we get there and, uh, I'm, I'm like the youngest guy on my lead at a lead at is a law enforcement detachment, which is the tactical law enforcement team I'm on. So, uh, I of course say, you know, I pull first ECP watch. So I'm like, all right, cool. So we we pull into port and we get on this Jabushan Navy Dow that is like helping us pull perimeter security, right? So uh, it's probably like two o'clock in the afternoon. I of course have my kit on with my M4 slung, and it is 120 degrees outside. So I'm sweating my balls off, like it's horrible. And I'm out in the middle of the sun. There's no cover. It's terrible. So, uh, I, of course, when I get out there, I throw a dip in because that's what we're doing. And these two Jabushan guys look at me and they're like, caught. I'm like, what? They're like, caught. I'm like, Copenhagen. They're like, no, 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 no. Caught. I'm like, what the fuck is caught, dude? So they pull out this baggie of cot and they proceed to jam this cot into their cheeks, man. It was pretty unbelievable. These dudes, it took them about 35 or 40 minutes and they were completely fucking spacing out, man. I was like, all right, this sucks. Like I'm out here on a Jabushan Navy little shitbox boat and I've got two dudes that are fucked up off cot and here I am and it's still 120 degrees. So this sucks. Um, but we did so that was that was day one in uh, in the Horn of Africa. Uh, but we proceeded to spend the next like three months down there, and we would pull in and out of Camp Lemnier, just patrolling off the coast of Somalia, and uh, just it was pirate patrol, man. And it was interesting, you know. We board every single thing we saw, uh, you know, from like six a.m. to probably like eight p.m. Super long days, but uh, really interesting. We got us really crazy boardings and some really crazy shit happened down there when I was there. Um, and it was fun. we were the first, I think we were one of the first units to ever do some, some stuff like that. And that's kind of the beauty of the coast guard, man is, um, you know, you're, you're, it's a lot like DS in the sense that you're treated like an adult real early. You know, you either have the qualification or you don't. And if you got the qualification, well then you earned it. So then we're going to treat you like an adult and you're going to act accordingly that's it's kind of like the general rule of thumb which is nice um so that is the complete opposite of the marine corps <laughs> uh, just you, you are not an adult i don't i don't fucking know when you became an adult i was i came out as a sergeant and i still was not an adult apparently um i anyway well I so i it. did you know it's it's funny um because I got to do, I got to spend a lot of time, uh, in my coast guard, in my coast guard career, I got to spend a lot of time with a bunch of different, uh, a bunch of the different military organizations. Right. So the last job that I had in the coast guard, was based out of Bahrain and I was attached to fifth fleet and I was doing J sets, which is uh, joint combined exercise training. Uh, or if you're an SF guy, it's FID, right? Foreign internal defense. We were teaching foreign militaries how to fight, shoot, board ships, uh, you know, whatever. And um, it was interesting, man. And so, it, you know, being based out of Bahrain, we had Fast Company. Fast Company Marines were there. And we would run them through this like week long course because we had this ship in a box that we had created. It was something crazy. Like, it was like, 
30 containers that had all been like welded together and we made, you know, like stairwells and it was a ship. It was, we made it into a ship. There was a home and there was an engine room and there was mat rooms where we could fight. And like we shot airsoft guns at each other and it was cool. And, uh, every, it was like, it was every single time it was the same thing with the Marines, right? The first, and I always wore a red shirt. So I, I was, I was a E6 when I was doing this, but I wore civilian clothes because, um, well for, for a multitude of reasons, but this week with the Marines was always the same thing. The first two days, it was, it was the discussion centered around, um, it was always like, all right, well, what's like, you know, financial liquidity. How do you escape a bear? Like, what are we going to do during the zombie apocalypse? Like crazy, like crazy stuff. Right. And it just, it really devolved from there. Um, but I'm going to tell you, uh, in all of the time I spent with all of the different uh, military organizations, I really enjoyed my time with the Marines, man. I'm not just saying that because you're here. They are uh, – there's no question for the most part what you're getting with a Marine, right? They're all going to wear their uniform right. They're all going to act right. And all the ones that are giant fat bodies get hidden up on the mountain and they're not allowed to come down until you're not a big giant fat person anymore. Like, you know, it's a pretty consistent – you know what you're getting which is unlike the Navy and it's unlike the army, right? Like there's a big, large variety in what you get with those two, uh, with those two military organizations a lot of time. Um, so I always appreciated my time with Marines. I, I like, we like to berate the fat bodies amongst us. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Just punish them. And yeah. Uh, And yeah, you do get a lot of consistency and discipline. The, The Marine Corps applies that, uh, obviously across the board, um, in, in particular your, in your infantry units. Cause if we're not out in the field training, we're doing drill, uh, you know, we're, we're in garrison and, uh, you know, there's inspections and everything from uh, uniform inspections to junk on the bunk to, you know, gear inspections. And, and there's a lot of pride in that. Um, that said after hours, uh, you don't know what to expect. So there was a rule for all of these fast company Marines. Um, and they were doing, they were doing like, I think it was like a, like a four month deployment to Bahrain. And so the rule was for the first 30 days, they could not get out of their uniform unless it was to get into PTs, right? First 30 days, no alcohol period. The next 30 days, you could get out of your, you could get out of your uniform or your PTs to go off base for like one hour and you still could not have any alcohol the next 30 days. So now we're into like the third month. By the time you started your third month, you can have one beer a day or like a maximum on like a Friday or Saturday, you could have a maximum of three beers and you could never have hard alcohol ever. Absolutely forbidden. And if you did that, you were going to go home period. Yeah. That sounds about right. Yep. It was, I mean, uh, you know, I've experienced all of that from being a Lance corporal to, you know, when, uh, you talk about Marine security guards, which you've experienced. Uh, they, they give us a little more leeway once we get out there on the program. It's almost like you've been vetted a little bit, or at least used to be like that. 
Um, but when I was in the infantry unit, oh man, we had there was we had a a two day pass on a weekend in South Korea, and we were so surprised. What, what could yeah. go wrong? Exactly, we were so surprised that we were allowed that, and of course, like two or three guys didn't show back up, and of course. Um, we were all hammered and you can't tell a Marine, Oh, you can't have hard alcohol. Oh fuck. It's the first thing we're going to do. I'm going to, to I'm going to find the fifth vodka and I'm going to proceed to drink all of it. And you know, Korea has this thing called soju. It tastes like Kool-Aid and it's uh, like a hammer. It hits like a hammer. So anyway, well, cool, man. It sounds like you had a lot of, uh, well, you did. Yeah, the, Coast Guard, of, the yeah. Coast Guard was fun, man. It was a good time, um, and uh, I think it really ultimately set me up to to you know to go to DS. Um, and it's funny, you know. We again, we talked about this the first go around, uh, and I, I want to talk about it again because <clears throat> you know I applied twice to DS, and the first time I applied, <clears throat> it was two thousand seven. I was twenty seven years old. Um, and so let's let like rewind a little bit. So 2004, uh, guy is still one of my best friends. He is, uh, he comes to our law enforcement detachment. He had, he had come from the U S embassy in Nassau, uh, working at this unit called Opbat, And they are the ones that are responsible for all the, the, uh, like the P threes and the, the helos that are doing, you know, uh, that are attached to Jai of South that are doing drug surveillance, reconnaissance stuff like that it's pretty interesting i'm very familiar with op-ed you are i don't admit this but i was at the u.s embassy there as a marine security guard on my second tour ah so you do know what i'm saying i know op-ed i know what they do with DEA. what year what year were you there um april 2002 to june 2003 Okay, so I must have just missed you. I must have just missed you because I it wasn't think, Diaz, was it? No, okay. no, uh. Uh-uh. Um. So he he joins our our tactical law enforcement unit, and we're on a deployment somewhere. Who knows where? Out in the middle of the fucking ocean, doing who knows what. And uh, he comes to me one day, and he's like, "Hey, man!" And this guy is like really smart. Like he's probably. Uh, so he's a a former VMI grad, really bright guy. Still to this day, I think he's the best writer I've ever met. Um, and he's just kind of astute and actually he helped kind of change me a little bit too. It was one of those deals where again, we would do two weeks out, we pull into port, you know, three days of, of debauchery. This guy was like, as soon as he took over our law enforcement detachment, he was like, okay, first day you guys are allowed to go to the first bar you see. However, comma, Day two and day three are reserved for like something else. We were going to go somewhere else on this island that we pulled into or this country that we pulled into, and we were going to learn about this island, and we were going to go see some different stuff, and we're not going to hang out with these fucking Navy guys. We're going to go do some other shit. So it actually, uh, it actually kind of turned me to like, you know, a little more, uh, a little more culturally sound. Uh, it definitely helped me at that. But he asked me in 2004, he's like, Hey man, so, you know, what are you going to do after the coast guard? And I was like, I was 24. And I don't fucking know. I'm like, uh, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't really thought about it. So he's like, well, have you ever considered federal law enforcement? And to me at that point, it was such a far fetched thought. Like it was just so far away. I mean that, that to me, it was like, well, who like, I don't know who are the people that get to do that? I don't know. So, 
uh, I ended up doing, we, you know, we came back from that deployment. He kind of introduced me to it. I started doing some reading. Um, I ended up going back to embassy in Nassau to do a little bit of training with the local Bahamian uh, defense force there. Um, and so while I was there, I had organized a meeting with the RSO. I had requested a meeting with the RSO that was there. Uh, I don't know if it was, it was a John Kane when you were there. No, what year were that you was there? Probably oh four. That was oh four, or like late oh no. three. Oh well, the the ARSO was Robluski, and no. he was the acting RSO for a year, only because the presidential appointee ambassador uh, didn't want to allow another RSO in because Andrew was so squared away. Mm. And anyway, long story there, but okay. Uh, no, I don't know Kane. Anyway, uh, you know, he's a former secret service guy. Um, he, I'll tell you what he, uh, he spent about two hours talking with me, man. It was awesome. You know, it left a really good impression, uh, on me. And it just kind of, again, it gave me a tangible, like, wow, this is diplomatic security. Like, holy cow, this is awesome. So, uh, you know, fast forward to like 2006, um, I had, you know, finished my, my degree while I was doing, while I was on active duty and I was like, okay, you know, I'm going to apply. So I applied and, uh, got to the, got to the Bex. So I was in Miami at the time and, um, <laughs> I showed up at 8am. I showed up earlier than that. You know, my interview was at 8am, right? The federal building, old federal building down in Miami. So I show up probably like seven thirty or so and it's closed. Everything's closed, right? The federal building isn't open until eight. Well, my interview's at eight. So I'm like, think I'm shitting my pants outside. I mean, I'm, well, it's hot. I'm in a suit. So I'm sweaty. I'm nervous. And I'm um, just thinking to myself, like, God, they're going to. Now, another good buddy of mine had interviewed, I don't know, maybe like two months prior to that and got a, he had gotten kicked out of the Becks. Again, not following, not following instructions will get you kicked out. Right. So he had told me this horror story about how he didn't double space. Cause at that point, you know, we were still handwriting, <laughs> we were handwriting our essay at that point. Uh, and uh, like, yeah, he didn't double space or didn't put his name in the top right corner or something, something stupid, like, you know, like no attention to detail. And, uh, he got booted. And so when I showed up, I'm, I'm nervous. I'm thinking about my head. I'm like, Oh my God, this is what I really want to do. I'm scared out of my mind. So I, I finally get up there. And I walk in, it's like on the eighth floor or something like that. I walk into this, into the lobby and there is this guy who is, I'm not kidding you. This guy's like 95 years old. I mean, he's like older than dirt, man. And he's got this bright blue suit on. Right. And so I, I like, I come in and I kind of stand there for a second. I pause. I'm like, what, like what, where am I? Is this, I was like, is this the diplomatic security office? And he's like, yes. I was like, oh, okay. Well, I'm I'm Jeff Carlson. I'm here to do my becks. He's like, right this way. And he gets up and he's going about, you know, three miles an hour, walks me out the hall, walks me down to this conference room. I'm kind of like chuckling myself, like, man, this dude's, you know, I don't know if I have to perform CPR. He's old, man. So I get into this room and it's just me. It's this big, massive conference room. And, uh, you know, they come in, they read you the directions and, um, they, you know, give you a bunch of topics to pick from. I pick whatever I pick and I start to write and it's just a fucking shit show. I mean, just a shit show from the get go. And, uh, I mean, I was, I was so nervous, man. I was so nervous because it was, it was what I really wanted to do. I mean, I held at that point, I was still like 
it was on a pedestal, man. So, um, totally mind fucked myself out of it. Uh, the agent comes back in after 45 minutes, you know, he looks at my essay. He's like, okay, cool. You know, just give me a minute. Um, and like seven minutes later he walks back in and he's like, all right, go ahead and uh, grab your coat and come with me. So I'm like, okay, cool. Like, where am I going? And we get in the elevator and he's pushing fucking down. I'm like, uh, is this, <laughs> am I done? He said, yeah, yeah. You're not going to go on to the, you're not going to go on to the next phase today. I said, Oh my, so I'm crushed, man. And he could tell, I'm like, I mean, at that point, I'm like, I get real quiet. And he's like, listen, apply again. Got a year. Get your shit together. Apply again. I'm like, all right. You know, and that was, uh, you know, at that point, I'm 27 years old. Um, and it's, it's one of those things, too. I think that, you know, just when you think you got the world by the balls, it, it's like inevitably, God smacks you down and it's like, no man, no, I got more for you, bud. And it was one of those moments for me, right? It was one of those moments where I really needed to get slapped down a little bit to really collect myself, get my shit together and go. And that, uh, ultimately that, that really helped me, man. And it's, and I think it's, it's one of the big deterrents for a lot of people in life. And, and this is not just with DS, man. This is like, you know, going to the private sector or doing specialized shit in the military or, you know what, being a college baseball player, like whatever it may be. Um, I think that the last, the last coach I played for in college, this guy was Cody. This guy was such a red ass. I mean, we hated him. Like I, he was the, the, he was evil reincarnate man. And when I told him I was joining the military, uh, he called me, you know, I, I knock on his door he, I go and I sit in his office and uh, I'm like, Hey coach, just want to tell you, I'm going to join the military after the year is over. So of course he throws a massive dip in and he's just like, you know what, man, I'm going to tell you something. This world is too big and you're going to get knocked down in life and no one's going to give a fuck if you stay down. So do yourself a favor, man, pick yourself up, be a man, dust yourself off and keep going. Don't quit. No matter what happens, don't quit. And I thought, you know, at the time I'm like 21, like I still, I'm an idiot. And I'm like, okay, thanks coach. You know, I'd leave. And, uh, that, that has stuck with me every day, every day since that. Cause I've had a lot of tough days, man. You know, there's been a lot of tough days, a lot of shit's happened along the way. And, uh, I think that has resonated with me more than anything, more than any other piece of advice I've ever gotten is, is just that. Right. And that was the moment where I needed to suck it the fuck up and, you know, listen, no one's going to give a fuck if you don't apply again. So pick yourself up, dust yourself off and keep going, man. Keep moving. Um, so yeah, I think there's a ton of value in that story. I have guys that I've talked to guys and girls, um, that I've been, uh, not really mentoring yet, but kind of communicating with and Hey, what can I do to make myself successful on this? And some of them made it and some of them haven't. I always explain, like, it took me three times. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of really good people multiple times. Some of the best people I've served with have taken two, three, four times to get in. And, uh, and of course, you get good ones that come in on the first shot as well. But, uh, you know, there's, there's so much value in knowing that, like, listen, it's competitive. 
I believe there was a time where we were hiring, what was it, Jeff? Uh, you may have heard this. We're hiring like, I don't know, 50 agents, maybe 100, and 42,000 applicants applied over a two-week period or something like yep. that. Like, it's fucking competitive, man. It's, it's astronomically, I mean, if you look at the numbers, right, it's just like astronomically competitive. And, you know, again, I do my best to reach out to folks and to be available and to talk and chat. And, you know, I, I tell a lot of people the same thing. I'm like, look, ultimately, you need to make a decision. If, if you can just decide right now that I'm not going to quit, that I'm going to keep going no matter what happens. I have a goal. I'm going to keep going. You're going to be successful. And I mean, I am by no stretch of the imagination, uh, smartest guy in the room. Um, I am, you know, I am not over, I don't hold any qualification that anybody would like, we are basically the same dude. Right. Um, I will tell you though, that one of the things I think that makes me different and you know, and I'll, I'll tell you another story about Afghanistan that I kind of think will, um, you know, come back to this a little bit, but the most successful people that I've ever met, and that's to include the private sector where I'm at now, um, you know, these ultra, ultra successful people, they all have like a very similar trait and it's, it's grit. It's a, you're, these are fucking gritty people, man, who no matter what, will refuse to quit. Just refuse to quit. They have a goal. They know what it is. And no matter how many times you punch them in the mouth, no matter how many times they get knocked down, they get their ass back up and they don't whine about it. And they just keep going. They just keep going. Just pick your shit up and keep moving, man. Um, and that, that I think is the ultimate that's, I I try to tell my son this all the time. I'm like, dude, if you just decide right now that you're not going to quit at something, don't quit you're going to be fine. You're going to be successful. That's the yeah, mentality, that's mentality though. That's, that's a mentality. That's, you know, that's some, that's, a, that's an attitude. Yep. Yeah. Sure. That's, um, that's a excellent point. And I feel like you can tell those that came in and, uh, well, one have that grit. They might've taken a few times cause they just act different. Yeah. I've had people come in that got in after, uh, only, uh, only college, a master's degree, may have worked in a fucking restaurant or something. And they get in and they have this complex. Like, uh, I literally had a girl in my class say, um, and if she listens to this, well, you shouldn't have said it, but she's like, I'm, I'm in so early. I might be an ambassador someday. And to those of you listening, it's not very common for a DS agent to be an ambassador, but it could happen. I think that's there's there's one Gentry Smith is like the only person that I have ever known of personally that has like yeah. been promoted to the rank of ambassador. Right. And he's with OFM, which is a domestic ambassador. Yep. There, there's another one I've heard of. I don't know the name that wasn't actually ambassador to, at a U.S. embassy in a foreign nation. But other than that, it's not the case. But she, but you can't say that to a group of dudes and girls that have struggled. And she said it into, uh, uh, it was, we were going to uh, like have some beer after a class and it was three of us, uh, three Marines, what well, two enlisted one officer and between us we had applied probably you know six times uh-huh. um, me being the one have applied the most the biggest shit back in the car and um you know she said this and it was just like silence and we talked later and we're like what the fuck is she talking about and you know she's she's a nice human i think she's smart but um and she's probably doing well i i, I do like her i just at that point like you don't say that stuff and yep. uh you know, you can tell, you can tell those who fought for it. It's, uh, yeah, you're right. And 
you know, to add on to that a little bit, I think, uh, you know, I kind of going back to the, the private sector a little bit in this and trying to make, trying to make an understanding of, of, you know, who gets hired where and, and who does what? <clears throat> well, fast forward to my second time I applied, I was coming out of Bahrain this time. Right. And, um, I, so I was in Bahrain 2009, 10, and I had a job lined up to work for the Qatari uh, Emiri Naval Special Forces. I was going to be their training officer because we had spent a ton of time with them over the course of the last year. So uh, I had agreed in principle to the salary. They were going to move me there, like put me up in housing, you know, they're buy my house, buy me a car. Um, it was good, man. It was a, it was a, it was a good deal, a good job. I knew I didn't want to stay in the Coast Guard. Um, so I had told them, I said, listen, I had also successfully screened to come back, uh, you know, an interview again with DS. So I told them before I left, I said, listen, I just need to get my life together. Uh, this was like August when I got back, like, look, I need to get my life together and get my, you know, pack my stuff up or whatever. And I have a job interview with the state department, you know, but if, if that doesn't work out, I'm going, I'm going to come. They said, yeah, no problem. You know, seats right here whenever you're ready. All right. So when I came back in 2010, um, I had a lot, I had a lot more experience at that point. Um, and I was older and I had another job lined up. So the pressure was really off at that point, right? Like, I mean, I was going to make the best of what I could. So I, again, I flew back, I came back to Miami, my wife and kids were here. Um, so I flew back down here and then I had to get myself up to DC, right? Because if you make, if you miss that cycle, the Beck cycle, whatever city you're in, you know, because you're overseas or you're serving or you're on deployment or whatever it is, you got to get yourself up to DC to go do that interview and, uh, get to the interview. It's the best tip you can give anyone. Find a way to get to the fucking interview. Yep. And so, you know, going back to that, that number, that really, really large number of people that apply, I had always told myself that, look, man, if you can just get out of being number, you know, 36,512, and just become Jeff Carlson and you could talk to somebody, I'm going to talk my way into why they should give me a conditional offer. So this go around, uh, I flew up to DC. It was September. Um, a buddy of mine was stationed up there. And so I went and stayed with him. And so you like my interviews on like a Friday or something like that. So I fly on Thursday, that Thursday afternoon, get there and we proceed to get housed, right? Like we probably drink way, I drink way too much. And of course my interview is at seven, it's at eight o'clock, but you know, I decided I'm going to be there at seven 30, man, we drank way too much. And, um, but I showed up and I was pretty hungover. Um, but I, I, again, I had like a job lined up there was no pressure, you know, to perform. Um, and I was a little more mature at the time. And so when I got to the writing portion, uh, you know, it was kept it real simple, you know, let's do an introduction. Let's do three paragraphs to hit our main points and then we'll do a conclusion. And it was like, just, I kept it real simple. Uh, and of course, you know, you start your day and some of the other podcasts I've, I've listened to, they, you know, say that they talk about the same thing. You start the day and you don't know exactly how many people are there, but you see people in it. You're like, coming in and out of rooms, right? So you know that there are people there with you bexing. And as the day progresses, people kind of drop off, man. You're like you just they people get escorted out. So I'm sitting at one by so I again, you know, show up at 7:30, my interview is at 8. 
Um, I think by the time I got out of my, my second phase, um, it's probably, you know, like coming up on lunchtime, like 10 30, 11 o'clock. And I'm sitting next to in the lobby of DS, which I also feel like is a little different interview experience too, because it's headquarters and it's a little more like, I feel like it's a little more regimental and, and formal and in, in how they do it. Um, you know how it is, man. Sometimes in the field offices and the racks and stuff like that, it's a little more, it's a little more relaxed. I interviewed out of the DC, uh, the Arlington, Virginia office, the headquarters office. And I was the witness to interviews in the San Diego office. I didn't sit in on them, but it was during a time where, where people were coming in. And of course, most of the time at racks, you get guys that are just like, if you go to a rack for a reason, when I say a rack, it's a residential agent office. It's a smaller office, a subset of a field office. So San Diego is the rack of LA. And, um, yeah, I was in so, Seattle. I was in Seattle. So I know what you're saying. Yeah. There, there you go. Same um, thing. Yeah. So, and, uh, it was just so much more laid back. Cause a lot of the dudes and girls that go there are just like, yeah. they're not, not say they're not career ambitious. They just want to break. They want to hang. And, Everybody, like I don't know how it was when you were in San Diego. I'm not sure how it was, but of the the eight agents that were in Seattle when I was there, we had, we were all coming off a high threat post. Every single one of us had either come back from an AIP or some shithole in Africa that was a disaster. Yeah, a ton of us. Same. Just want to break. Yeah, just, you don't want to go to headquarters. A little bit of downtime, man. Just need a little don't bit. Want to wear a suit. Yep. Cool out. Yep. So, uh, you know, when I, when I, I made it to, I, you know, went through phase two. So I, you know, did the, inter- or did the, uh, the writing portion, did the, the brain bench, whatever exam I'm sitting there and I'm talking to this dude who is a, he's a PJ in the air force. And, uh, you know, we're just kind of chit chatting. I'm like, wow, this dude, this dude's fucking squared away. Right. So I, I'm sitting there just, we're kind of making small talk or whatever, like 10 minutes later, uh, they're asking him to, to leave. They're like, Hey, go ahead and grab your cell phone, go ahead and grab your stuff. And we're, you know, going out the door. This dude got hauled out right in front of me. So I'm like, I'm thinking to myself again, I start to, I start to question myself. I'm like, damn, they're kicking this dude out. Like what is, what is round three going to be like? So, um, I, I get my shit together. I'm like, okay, you know what? Again, fuck it, dude. You've got nothing to lose got a great job lined up, man. It's, it's fine. Whatever happens, happens. Give it your best. Show them who you are. Let it, let it roll. So we, you know, we go into the interview room, uh, and they're like, they're small rooms, man. It's probably like a, I don't know, like an eight by 10 or something like that. And I've got, uh, you know, Mr. Disney is sitting across from me and, uh, another retired agent, Bruce Tolley is sitting across from me. And, you know, Mr. Disney, like he'll read you the riot act, man, like right out the gate. And he's like, listen, this is going to be about an hour. I'm telling you, I've got a series of questions for you. If you get off track, I'm going to kick you out of here. Stay short, sweet, and to the point, answer the questions and we're going to be fine. So (laughs) I'm like, okay, Roger that. Let's do it. So, uh, you know, we start, we start going through the questions and it kind of dawns on me that, um, you know, it's interesting. You, you can, through any conversation, right. You start to develop a rapport with people at points, right. Where, you know, they like what you're saying. They think, you know, things kind of good vibe going on. So Mr. Disney, I, I can see it. He's like, you know, 
he sees it in me. I'm like, all right, cool, man. So he asked me this question. He said, you know, he starts talking about uh, what I did in Bahrain and, and how I was in charge of like all the law enforcement gear for this, you know, 200 person unit. So I'm like, yeah, that's, that's correct. I was, you know, in charge of law enforcement. And he's like, so would you say that you were forecasting the budget for the following year? I was like, yes i was that's exactly what i was doing i was forecasting so it was it was kind of cool man at that point that's um, called a leading question jeffrey for our listeners that was soft toss so uh it was good though you know like i figured it out that they needed me to hit some keywords and um you know not that he gave he didn't give anything to me but I, i figured it out like all right man like you know this is this is the road i need to take this interview down right and uh Anyways, so, you know, went through phase three, phase four, passed it fine. Um, got my, got my conditional offer. Um, and I did, I did really, really well, uh, this go around and I was, I was classed up in like five months, dude. So, um, I waited like next to no time, uh, you know, had my, had a TS already from the military. So I was fine. So, you know, didn't have to, to redo my TS, but, um, man, I was, I was in a class by April. So, You know, a lot of it is, is subjective. It's, it's who's who you're in front of. And a lot of it is how you build that rapport with those individuals and how you respond to things. And then you kind of, kind of build that, uh, that personal capital as fast as you can. And, um, I had the same experience on my third interview where it was like, it's like talking to you and another guy and just, I just felt it. Yeah. Um, and you know, to, so people listening like that, that PJ was squared away to you. I would think the same thing, but they're not always looking for that type of stuff that you think. Cause I have a lot of guys like, well, do I need military experience or need law enforcement? No, you don't. What you need really is interpersonal skills and critical thinking skills. And if you can apply those and articulate those during your, uh, the second interview basically, or the second portion, whatever you say, I did all these things. Yep. Let me explain. Yep. And then of course the critical thinking skills, when you get to the scenario questions, then you're going to be okay. You know, uh, being a, a guy that jumps out of an airplane and can, and can do some tactical medicine is fucking awesome. But if you can't articulate, cause most embassies, right. And consulates don't need that. There are very few that do. So, I think the interpersonal skills is, is, uh, it's is so critical. Component. It's, it's so, it's so incredibly critical. And this is not just for DS, but like, you know, for the private sector too, or, or, or for anything. And I think what it really comes down to, uh, you know, and I never sat, I never got to sit on a Bex. Um, but you know, having, having gone through the interview process, uh, with more than one agency and, you know, working now in the private sector, I think what it really comes down to is, do I like this person enough to do 12 hours of surveillance with them? Right? Like, is this person, am I going to want to, am I going to want to kick them in the teeth in the follow car in hour number eight of sitting, waiting for our protectee to come out? You know, like these are literally like critical questions. I, I feel like that's what it comes down to. It's that simple, right? Like, you know, most of us have very similar backgrounds. We have, you know, whether it's military or law enforcement or advanced education or foreign language, whatever it is, man, like we're all pretty much the same, but going back to this PJ, like if your personality sucks and you can't convey to the other person across the table, the other two people or the other four people, when you get to the fourth round, if you can't convey to them 
why you're not the person that is going to want to be the person that got their teeth kicked in, then shame on you, man. Cause that's what it's about, right? It's about our interpersonal relationships and developing those to drive, you know, to drive investigations, to drive protection, to drive mission, to drive whatever, because it's like, well, how many times did you ever do something with somebody? And, uh, you know, it was just a shit mission, shit assignment, whatever. But the dude or the chick that you were with, the people that you were with made all the difference in the world, right? Makes all the difference. Very true. Very true. So we've been here 40 minutes and it got a lot of valuable intel, Jeffrey. Let's talk about your next post, though. All right. Um, or your first post, and because I know you did a lot of cool stuff there. Um, but this first portion uh, will certainly be advantageous to you know aspiring agents, and that's what we're trying to do here. So uh, tell me about Miami and some of the things you did in Miami, because I know you took advantage of some TUIs. Yeah, so uh, I, got, you know, I got to Miami um, – I graduated from BSAC like the end of, uh, 2011. So I get there and, um, you know, like I, I think I get there during APEC, I think. Right. So this DD thing happened. I mean, it's, you know, it really like ramps up pretty quickly for us. So, uh, so I missed APEC, missed UNGA my first year <clears throat> and I get there, you know, I get to my field office and, um, you know, my supervisor was a good dude, uh, and he was a pretty senior too at the time. Um, and it's like, you know, he just, he hands me like 10 cases and he's like, all right, man, you know, uh, just go ahead and work these, just go ahead and, you know, work them up and, uh, yeah, just, you know, whatever happens, don't let me get a fucking phone call. I'm like, cool. All right. So that's about the, it's about the extent of my, you know, <laughs> my, uh, my, uh, my introduction to the Miami field office was just that man. And I think one of the frustrating things for me, right. Was coming from the military. You have, uh, you know, if you have a question about something, read the SOP, read the manual. It's right there. You know, when you show up to DS, a lot of times that's not how it goes. This is a good example of that. Show up in Miami, get 10 cases, well, how the, how the fuck am I supposed to work these, man? I mean, they give you the basics in BSAC, but like, this is real. Now this is real. This is like meaningful stuff that like where people are actually potentially going to jail and you know, it's real. Well, there are no field training officers. No, you might have a guy with some Intel. Like, uh, I think you talked about, um, Ray or something at one point. Um, well, there's, there's, there's people that might give you some Intel and teach you how to do things, but there are no field training officers. You and your buddy from BSAC will go out and run a lead and do a surveillance and do an arrest. And it's funny, like the old guys or the old people, the old chicks, old dudes, old DS agents are like people that have been there like six months, right? Like <laughs> they've literally been there yeah. six months. And you're looking yeah. at these people and they kind of walk around the office, they like kind of strut around the office and they're like, you know, you think about it now and you're like, you are a soup sandwich. Like you are as much of a soup sandwich as I am. So fucking whatever, dude. Um, but I'll tell you, it was a really good time. Uh, Miami, uh, the Southern district of Florida is a, it is, there is so much going on down here. There is, you know, whether it's passport fraud, which we were investigating, but dope. I got involved in a couple of dope cases. Um, you know, murder, there's all kinds of crime down here. And I would also say that, uh, 
like the level of criminal that we're that we're talking about down here in in the Miami area is a hard motherfucker, man. These these folks are they grow up poor and they grow up really fucking hard, man. Um so it's it's pretty real. It's pretty real down here in Miami. Uh we got a got a chance to do some really cool interagency uh mission stuff too. Uh, we went to Puerto Rico and did like, uh, I mean, there was like, there was like 50 of us that flew to Puerto Rico and did a joint op with like HSI, the FBI and postal. And we arrested, I think we, you know, we, we arrested something like 15 people in two days where we had all these cases, you know, they had done all the legwork worked up and we split up into teams when we got there and, uh, made, you know, like 15 or 15 arrests, um, in like two days, and that was cool. You know, like that's, that was like real agent work. That's like, you know, what you read about like, wow, man, it's pretty cool. Um, but to be honest with you at the same time, you know, and during that time in DS and it's interesting because, you know, you've had some guys on here, you know, uh, the Mike Perkins is uh, Mike Perkins is, is an old school dude, man. And you know, his experience in the field office is going to be very different than what your experience or my experience was just based on timing, right. Based on the year that you were in, based on the year that you were there. And, uh, you know, the years that I was, that I was in the Miami field office, I will never forget when I was actually going through BSEC, we had a class that was like two weeks ahead of us, something like that. Right. So the director of training would always come back to Glencoe and go to the, um, the graduation. Right. And so he showed up and then came and talked to our, he had lunch with us. And we were sitting there and, you know, of course they're, they're, they're like, Oh yeah, you can ask him anything you want. That's not true. You can't ask him anything. Like he's going to sit up there and talk for fucking 45 minutes and then you're going to shut your mouth and he's going to leave. Uh, well, yeah, he was actually pretty, he was actually a pretty good dude. He wasn't like that. But, um, again, he, he sat up there and he said, listen, folks, I'm gonna tell you something. I don't know what agency you thought you were joining when you got here, but we are not, going to take the flag down at any embassy or consulate around the world. We are not doing it. I'm telling you now, we are not going to do that. You are going to go to places that are very much would be considered less than desirable places for you. And we are turning into very much a paramilitary organization. So if you think that you want to do investigations or if you think that you're going to sit domestically and not go out, walk out that door right now. I'm telling you, you're going to be severely disappointed with your career in DS. And, you know, a lot of us were former military folks. In fact, my class of 24, 21 of us were former military or law enforcement. So, like, we knew better. You know, like, we kind of knew better. The majority of it, we all knew what we were getting ourselves into. Um, And, you know, come my time in Miami, it really, you know, that's exactly what happened. So, I would say in my first like three or four months, um, I got there, you know, my, my ASAC was like, Hey man. Uh, and he's a former, he's a former SF guy. He was like, Hey man, uh, you're going to have to go to high threat at some point. So if I was you, I would go ahead and just Roger up for it now while the weather's good in DC and that way it's not hot as shit or cold as fuck. So I was like, all right. So I went to high threat, uh, in April, um, 
in April of 2012. So I was like actually pretty fresh out of BSAC still. So a lot of the, uh, a lot of the skills were still pretty fresh in my mind, but you know, it's a, it's also a very, at that point, it was also a very, very in-depth course. There was a lot of medical stuff that we didn't get to do in BSAC. Uh, a lot of, um, there's a lot, lot more, a lot more shooting, a lot more, uh, a lot more weapons skill building that we really didn't get into when I was in BSAC. And it was, it was really good training. Uh, and I'm glad I did it. Um, but I, I think the high threat tactical course, or it's called Atlas now, the, the, the value in it and how in such a short time, whether it be people were doing five weeks to 11 weeks at one point. Yeah. But the amount of mine was 10, mine was a 10 week. Okay. Mine was 10 the amount of information you were getting in that course from beginning to end, it was long days, but from, uh, you know, T triple C to the portion of the SEER training to the, uh, yeah, that was, which was kind of fun. It was a very small portion, but it was kind good, of fun. I have, I have a good story about that. Yeah. And then like the, the shooting and everything and the, and the instructors are fucking fantastic. They're oh, all yeah. from the SF world. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, yeah. Really, really great training, and for such in a short amount of time, I don't know of any, and mainly because I haven't been a part of it. Maybe FBI HRT has it, but I don't know of any other agency that can that does what we do in that high t- the high threat tactical course in such a small amount of time. They really find like the greatest shit you can learn and fucking put it within those eleven weeks. Yep, ten weeks. Yep, it's uh, you know, and I'll, I mean. I think, I mean, I'll say it, uh, it's what really separates DS agents from everybody else, you know? And I mean, and I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about HRT, man, because those guys are, those guys are shit hot, but they're also doing shit hot training and they're, they've gone through a selection to get there. And they're, you know, this is in addition to what we're talking. Every single agent is being asked to go through high threat in diplomatic security. Everybody everybody. So I don't know another agency that spends the time and the resources to get their folks trained up and ready to go and operate right in a real, in real time, in real world, like diplomatic security does. And, and you know, this too, look, a good FBI career, uh, you know, you probably work a handful of really good cases, you know, cause you know how federal cases are, man, they take years, years, Maybe you work a handful of good cases. Maybe you do a couple good TDYs. Maybe you were, you know, maybe you were shit hot and you went to HRT for a while. Um, but for the most part, man, there is not it. Diplomatic security gives you the opportunity to do things and be in places that nobody is. Nobody, nobody gets to. Nobody does it. Right. That's cool. That's that's the true cool thing about DS in my mind. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can't, can't agree more. There's, uh, they want everybody to be on par. They want everybody to know the same thing. Now, yeah. so everybody's skill set. It's kind of that whole equality of opportunity, equality sure. of outcome type thing, right? And and the in the outcome, uh, those of you who succeed, like everybody that passes, will can is eligible to go to a high threat post. Sure. Uh, and hopefully, the RSO there does their vetting process. Says, these are the guys going to do these things and these are guys and girls do these things, whether it's an investigative skill set, a former law enforcement skill set, a protection skill set, uh, or military skill set. Um, 
And, and, uh, but yeah, you're right. Cause you know, for HRT, they have to get selected or volunteer yeah. and across the board, especially now DS is trying to train everyone to that level. Well, uh, and so this is, and you know, this is where, uh, the similarities between like the Coast Guard and diplomatic security are very, very similar, right? Like, all right, look, the water's warm, man. Jump in. You graduated training. All right, let's go, Haas. You're in it. I would say, okay, so I got out of BSAC in like October. In November, I'm sitting in my, I'm sitting in the Miami field office one afternoon. It's, it's like a, you know, Tuesday afternoon or something like that. It's late. It's probably like I'm by late. I mean like three 30. So not like real late, but late for the field office. So I'm sitting there and there's like, it's a ghost town, right? Because a lot of guys are, you know, in most field offices at that point, uh, you know, these were all body pools for different TDYs going somewhere, doing something. Uh, so there was very few of us in the office anyway, but I'm sitting there and the ASAC starts to walk around. And so, of course, I look like I'm, I quickly go to focus mode in my computer, my little cubicle and start to, you know, hack away on the keyboard. And he walks up and he's like, Carlson, I turn around and say, yes, sir. He's like, hey, what are you doing this weekend? I was like, uh, well, probably, probably gonna hang out with my wife, my kid a little bit. Maybe, you know, maybe go to bed, bath and beyond. I don't know. And he's like, all right, cool. So we aren't doing shit. All right, bro. We're, we got a fucking SD trip coming up, man. Turn your passport in. I'm like, okay, Roger that, sir. I'm like, yeah. So <clears throat> I have no idea what any of this means. He, I get an email, you know, like 30 minutes after that. So I send my passport in up to, uh, uh, up to SD. And, you know, a couple days later, I get my passport back. And next thing I know on like Sunday evening, uh, I'm on a flight to Bali, Indonesia, right? Turns out this is a joint POTUS sex state trip to, to Bali, Indonesia. So I was there for like seven days and it was the ASEAN convention, uh, which was pretty interesting, you know, and, and just, that was my, again, that was like my first experience with the secret service as well. And, uh, so of course my job is I'm the left rear. Well, like, I'm three minutes out of BSAC, man. Like, what do I know? Right. I don't know anything about anything, but I'm the left here. Cause that's what you do. And, uh, I, I'll never forget. So it was like the third or fourth day of this, this conference. And it was at the four seasons in Bali. And, uh, I'm at this hallway. It's just like conference room after conference room after conference room. And, uh, I'm standing up in this hallway and there's like, it's like me and three other secret service agents and it's late. It's probably five or so. And I'm just sweating in a suit because it's Bali in November, which is their summertime. And, uh, I hear in my earpiece, uh, they're like, Hey, she's getting ready to move. Um, she's just going from one door to the next, just call her movement out. So of course I'm like, yeah, Roger that. And, uh, I go back to kind of like hugging the wall, just like hanging out, sitting in the hallway. And, uh, I would say about five feet away, the door, this door opens up, right? It's out of like my left periphery. And I don't really snap to essentially cause I don't know who it is. I just kind of like see this door open and this, I, I kind of look to my left and I realize like real quickly it's president Obama. So I'm like, shit. So I stand up real tall. I'm like, Oh God. And he looks down the hall one way and he looks down the hall the other way. And he looks right at me and he's like, man, it's hot out here. <laughs> it's like, so of course, of course I'm like, 
yes, sir, Mr. President, it is really hot out here. He's like, man, I wish I was in the pool drinking beers. Mm, it's hot. <laughs> I was just like fucking like, what? Uh, and I just, I just kind of chuckled, and he's like, all right, man, hey, have a good day. I'll see you later. All right, Roger that, sir. And that's like, listen, man, I'm telling you, I'm out of BSAC like one month and this happens to me, right? Again, this goes back to a counterpart of mine in the Secret Service. She stood and like she was staring at a bush for like 13 hours because I was going back and forth between this hallway and the follow car, right? Because we were there the whole day. At one point, you know, I mean, I just, I said hello to her as I walked by. At one point, it's like two in the afternoon. She hasn't moved. I walk by her. I'm like, hey, uh, and she's like, she looks like a hot mess. I'm like, Hey, do you, do you want some water or something? She's like, Oh my God. Can you, can you, can you? She's like trying to whisper to me. She's like, can you please give me a bottle? I'm so thirsty. I haven't had anything to drink in like, like five hours. Like, yeah. I was like, Oh, it's like, yeah. Like, let me, yeah, let me, let me go get you a bottle of water, man. So I run, I run and get her a bottle of water, but that's just the, that's, that's like a really good analogy for what, the secret services and how they treat the people and diplomatic security, what we are, how we treat our people. Right. Like she'd probably been an agent for like, I don't know, man, way longer than a month, 13 years, probably 13 Dude. years on the job. <laughs> she been standing there, staring at this bush, just staring, there's a sweating Bali November. Just, uh, she was so, she was so sad. She was so happy though. When I gave her a bottle of water, she was like, you know, it was like, I had found the cure for cancer or something. I don't know. But yeah, good people. Uh, I, tease, no, yeah. I tease about the Secret Service a lot. I actually uh, did a, a post the other day on, on uh, social media, and somebody, I don't know if they're a Secret Service, and I defended it. I was making a joke, and the yeah, guy was yeah, like, oh, the JV team. And so it was like, yeah, you know, it's okay. Fuck man. Up. Yeah, you, know, relax, you know what? Relax, you don't belong in the industry because yeah. we talk shit. Yeah, we talk man. shit about us. We yeah. talk shit about And it's cool. And, 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 you know what? and, and I, yeah, they're a good group of dudes and chicks. And like, yeah. if they ever needed anything, of course, we would always help them. What I make them, what I make them pay for it, maybe a little bit, you know, what I rub they ever needed to be trained properly. I would, you know, I would invite them over to do that. Exactly. Yeah, you know, I would invite them. Need our help overseas, <laughs> you know, and you will help you out. I will help you out. You know? No big deal. Uh, so, but yeah, that was, that was my first, that was my first experience with, uh, the service. And it was interesting, man, you know, like, <clears throat> again, it, it starts to, it starts to paint this greater picture of like what it is, right? Like what diplomatic security is. And it's really hard to wrap your mind around it when you're a young agent, because you just don't, you don't understand the breadth of what the U S government is, right? Like at that level, like you just don't, it's hard to understand that unless you, <clears throat> you know, had some previous experience before when the family member or something where you had some inside information, but I didn't have shit. I didn't have any of that. So I didn't know anything when I got there. So this for me was really the onset of like <clears throat> how different DS was, right? So, uh, you know, shortly after this, uh, you know, I go to high threat and then right after high threat, uh, I had initially decided that I was going to go do a 90 day TDY in Baghdad. So while I'm there, uh, you know, Libya is really kicking off, man. And it's like, uh, the, the desk officer, he had like a few of us were going to go and we, you know, we had changed our mind and then we were going to go to Libya and we worked it out and whatever. So in the matter of, I would say like, I don't know, three weeks or something like that, 
I had worked out. I was going to go from Baghdad. You know, I was like, all right, not going to Baghdad anymore. I'm going to Libya. So, uh, I left, I got to Libya. I got to Tripoli in like May, early, early May of 2012. And, um, that was a, (laughs) uh, you know, there's a, there's places you go to sometimes and, uh, and you're just like, holy shit, man, this is, this is real. And Libya was absolutely 100% that, um, a buddy of mine who was like a couple classes in front of me. So I'm a five at this point or like a six or something. I am such a junior baby agent. Um, I mean, again, like I don't know anything, right? Like, but I'm going to Tripoli. I'm going to Tripoli to TDY for 90 days. So I get there, uh, the guy, a buddy of mine who was like a couple classes in front of me in, in BSAC, he shows up to pick me up at the airport and, um, you know, I walk through customs and it's, and it's like, you know, I, I mean, I've been to some, some real garden spots, man. I'd been to Yemen, I've been to Iraq and done Egypt. Um, so, you know, the feeling of going through an airport and being like, Oh man, this place sucks. This was like, definitely you, you got that vibe. You're like, Oh man, this place is really fucked up. So we leave customs. I get my, get my bag. He's, you know, there waiting for me at the baggage claim. And we go to the car with the driver and he's like, all right, we get in the car. He's like, all right, man, listen, Hey, your M4 is underneath the seat. <clears throat> uh, you know, your, uh, your mags are, are right underneath the other seat in the, in the pocket. Uh, your pistol, I mean, here, here's your pistol, uh, body armors in the back helmets, helmets right next to it. So I'm like, <laughs> okay. Like, what the fuck, man? He's like, uh, yeah, just, just be ready to go. You know, you never just kind of one of those places, man. You never know what's going to happen. Like, all right. So at that point in 2012, there was like, there was probably like five or six, like really prominent, um, really like really, really prominent groups that controlled the city, different, different militias that that controlled different parts of the city. And, uh, you know, the, the ride from the airport back to our, back to our compound, it wasn't a real long ride. I think it was only like 20 minutes, man. It wasn't like a real long ride, but, uh, you know, you leave the airport and you go through, you know, you go through these intersections that are stops or stoplights. Right. But it's like, they're not really stoplights because it's like at every intersection, there is like, you know, eight to 10 dudes who are, you know, 20 to 29 years old, uh, walking around in civilian clothes with AK 47s. And they're like looking in, they're just kind of looking in cars and see what's going on. There's a dude otherwise known, <laughs> otherwise known as military age males, military yes. age males. I didn't want to yeah. go down that road, but since you did, no, I'll Let's they were military, you know, yeah, wheat in color, uh, and ready to rock and roll, man. And they were, they were 100% ready to rock and roll. Um, you know, dude sitting in the back of a Hilux with a weapon, you know, with a mounted weapon system in the back of this Hilux truck that I don't know if it would have fired or not, but he was up there hanging out. Like he thought he knew what he was doing. Um, and this was like every intersection, dude, like every single one. So, you know, as we go through the first one, I'm like, wow, this is real. This is like fucking really real. Um, and I will never forget like the first week I was there, you know, I get checked in. Um, I get checked into my, into my, my room 
and uh, you know, I get all my my kit set up or whatever. And I hear it's like 10 o'clock one night and uh I just I hear gunfire and it's like pretty close. It's probably like I don't know, maybe like a half mile away. So I'm like, shit, I you know, throw my kit on, I go hauling ass outside, and there's like nobody outside. Like nobody's no, I'm I'm waiting for the duck and cover to go up, nothing's going on. I'm like, all right. So I go to, we had a, we had a military unit that was there with us. And, um, you know, I go knock on the door. One of these guys, I'm like, Hey man, do you hear that? Like that's, that's gunfire. That's like a half mile away. So he kind of, he kind of listens for a second. He sticks his head out. He's like, yeah, that's a, that's a wedding, man. That's a, that's a celebration. I was like, okay, so we're good. He's like, yeah, yeah, we're good, man. Relax. Okay. So, uh, the following week, our front gate, they, they ended up, somebody shot, somebody shot our front gate or something crazy happened. And then there was a subsequent gunfire, like, you know, a couple blocks down the road. And at this point, again, I throw my shit on and now Doug and cover goes off. And, uh, you know, because at this point, this is like a couple blocks away and they had shot at our gate and it was now serious. Um, and I, I go out and we go to the roof. I go to my, my, my post on the roof and the same guy that I had knocked on his door, you know, he was my, he was my, the guy that I was with at my post on the roof. And, uh, he was like, all right, you hear that? That's the difference. You hear the gunfire, right? You hear the gunfire, the chatter, the back and forth of the gunfire. Whereas, you know, celebratory fire was just, you know, it was just, it was like kind of this repetitious round Robin of just, just gunfire. This was, they were chattering back and forth. And it was, it was, again, it was like my first introduction to like, that's real. Now that's really fucking close too, by the way. Um, you know, it was, it was a completely lawless land, man. Uh, but it was, and it was, uh, you know, we went out every single day. Um, the first, the first couple months I was there, I did a rotation of like Monday morning. I ran the QRF Tuesday afternoon. I ran the QRF Wednesday. I was working at the embassy Thursday. I was back to morning QRF, you know, that it was that rotation. Right. And there was no days off. We just didn't have room or time for it. Who was your QRF? Who, who, who so composed? Our QRF at that point was uh, a DS agent, me in the front, uh, our Libyan driver who, um, MSD had trained, right. They had come before and trained like 24 drivers and bodyguards. So they were one of our drivers. And then I had two, uh, two SF guys, two guys from an ODA in the, in rolling in the back with us. And it and, was, and these Libyan drivers though, who do they belong to? Cause I mean, you said like six team. different groups. Yeah, but I mean, oh, okay. oh so so they were yeah. civilians allegedly that worked. For we had them, hired, you know. that we vetted, that we vetted, right. gotcha. that we gotcha. trained, that we hired. Um, and to be honest with you, man, you know, having having been to Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen, uh, Libya, Egypt, you know, I, I've been to some. Again, I've been to some real garden spots. I'm gonna tell you something, man. The Libyans are are badass. Tons of national pride, man. Tons of national pride. And I love that about them. Um, and I could trust them. I could trust the guys that we worked with there. That's good. Yeah, it was, it was cool. It was a good experience. Um, overall, you know, it was, uh, that, that was my first two months of what I was telling you was QRF and the, the back and the forth. And Eric Nordstrom was the RSO when I first got there. And, you know, Eric is, uh, Eric is the smartest guy in the room. 
Like he is a really, really bright guy, really, really bright guy. Um, and he definitely was pretty frustrated. He was pretty frustrated. Like, you know, the first couple months I was there, um, asking for stuff and help. And he just kind of kept getting, kind of just kept getting the Heisman from back at headquarters. And, uh, I think he, um, yeah, there was some, there was some real frustration, uh, and I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to air dirty laundry. I'm not going to, uh, tell sideshow bullshit stories, but I will tell you that, um, he, he did ask for specific things and was told no. Um, you know, you go through tripwire scenarios where, you know, can the government adequately and properly protect the consulate embassy and or American staff on post, uh, you know, of the tripwires that you run through at post. I mean, we literally went through about fucking four of them, man, where they, this was just like bad, bad, bad all the way around. Yeah. And, uh, I've heard, I've heard, uh, that Nordstrom is a squared away dude. There were people that wanted to point the finger and there were places that as a DS agent where I knew to, if you're going to point the finger where to point it and it wasn't at the RSO and it wasn't at Eric Nordstrom was above him. And it, it, uh, anyway, continue. No, it's, you know, it's interesting, man. It's a, it was an interesting time. And, uh, I think, you know, like, like Tripoli and Benghazi, uh, at that point were very different. Um, you know, we always, I had a buddy of mine that was also at the Miami field office, uh, who was in Benghazi at the same time I was in Tripoli and I would, it would piss me off cause he, they had like better food than us. The weather was better. It wasn't nearly as violent as it was in Tripoli. I mean, like to put things in context for like how fucked up it was, um, we were, you know, I was working QRF one, one day and, uh, I think it was like, probably I was working like afternoon QRF and you know, we had several movements like in the evening and, uh, fuck man, we ended up getting pinned downtown because these, these two families got in an argument and they like started shooting RPGs at each other for like three hours. Like nobody could move because these two families were so mad at each other. They were shooting RPGs at each other. Like that's how we're handling the dispute, man. It's like, you know, crazy town. So, um, that was, you know, the first, the first couple months were, were really busy, man. Really like a lot going on. Uh, Senator McCain came like right, like right during their election, they had their first election in, you know, 40 plus years. Um, Gaddafi was dead at that point. Uh, but it was really tumultuous. It was really, really tumultuous in the country. And, um, and so, you know, he, he kind of, he, he didn't help. Uh, he came at a time when it was again, just crazy town. But right after the 4th of July, we were doing these, we were doing these two week rotations for ambassador Stevens to be his AIC. And so I took over, uh, right at the 4th of July and, um, and then I was his AIC until I left in the middle of August. So he asked me, um, he asked me to stay on him and I actually had a pretty good relationship. Uh, he was a good dude. Um, and we just kind of got, you know, got along pretty well. And he was, uh, you know, obviously being the AIC and again, you know, am I, am I really in any way, shape or form? Uh, you know, should I have been the AIC? I mean, I'm an S 
I'm a, I'm a five man. I'm, I'm a no nothing, nobody. And, uh, you know, you get, you get put into these positions and well, here you are, man, you know, this is, this is what we're doing. And that was what we had. And, um, I, I definitely learned a lot, uh, during that month, but, um, yeah, he was a good dude. Uh, you know, I, nobody will, nobody will shit talk him, especially from the security folk, you know, that he was, if I came to him at 8am and said, Hey, you know, sir, uh, we, we're supposed to leave in 15 minutes. Do you think we could leave about, can we leave in the next like five minutes? I want to go a different route. I want to, I want to change the route up a little bit. He would say, Hey, sure, Jeff, no problem. Let's do it. You know, or if, or if I said, Hey, you know, let's, let's push back 20 minutes. I'll get, I'll get your, uh, you know, your OMS to reschedule your meeting, but I don't, I don't want to leave right now. This is, this is, this is going on. He would say, Hey, yep. No problem, man. Sounds good. So he was so of the, anything we would recommend. He was like on it. Of the six podcasts I've done, uh, three of you have uh, spent some time with Ambassador Stevens and all have said the same thing. He's just a great guy. Yep. yep. He's a great guy all around, listened to security and did what he was asked. And, um, well, it's a shame. It sounds like he was a, a uh, advantageous to have in the department and, yep. You know what happened to him shouldn't have happened, but yeah, it was uh, yeah, it was pretty crazy, man. The week that I was supposed to, I left August seventeenth. We were actually supposed to go to Benghazi um, the week I was going to leave. So the week I was going to leave, I think I was leaving on like a, I don't know, man. I was thinking like a Thursday probably or something. We were going to fly so, to Benghazi. Set the scene. You were going to leave August of what? September. Uh, I'm sorry. August 2012. Yeah. Right before it all happened. Yeah. Okay. I left August 17th, 2012. So, uh, our plan was we were going to go to Benghazi, um, on like a, on like a Sunday. And then we were going to stay till Wednesday. We were going to fly back. And then, uh, I was going to leave on like Thursday or Friday. And we, we had planned this for like a month and about two weeks before we were going to go, you know, we spent a lot of time at the annex. Like I would say probably three or four days a week, we were at the annex getting, you know, he was getting briefings. Um, I was hanging out, crushing awesome food, uh, hanging out with the GRS guys. But you know, their, their ops boss comes to me and he says, Hey man, uh, can we have a quick discussion? I said, yeah, sure. No problem, man. So he says, yeah, we need to go down to the skiff. I'm like, well, okay. So, you know, go down, go down to the skiff. He said, Hey, uh, I think Benghazi is a really bad idea right now. I'm like, okay. He said, Hey, just, you know, read this. So he hands me the, he hands me the binder said, hey, read this, you know, this, I'm telling you, man, just push it. If you can push him. I said, all right. So I read through the Intel and, uh, I come back, uh, I go to the then RSO and I say, Hey, I think it's a, probably a good idea if we push ambassador Stevens trip to Benghazi. Like it's just, you know, the agency is making a recommendation that we don't go. Uh, you know, I just read through, uh, an Intel, tell dump that just doesn't sound real positive. I think it's a bad idea. I don't think we should go. He said, yeah, all right. Yeah, whatever. You know, tell the ambassador like, okay. So, uh, that afternoon we were back at the, the, uh, old chief of mission residence, which was where with the embassy was at. And, uh, you know, come and knock on his door. And again, I'm like a five man. Like, I don't, you know, <laughs> I, and I'm now briefing the ambassador. Right. So like, I, I, I knock on the door and uh, he's like, Hey Jeff, you know, how's it going? I said, good, sir. You got a second to chat? He said, yeah, sure. Come on in. So I go in, I walk in, I sit down 
said, Hey, uh, so I think, uh, I think we should probably push your trip to Benghazi, man. I think it's a bad idea. You get the same briefing that I just got. Like, I think you'd understand. He said, he kind of sits back in his chair and he looks at me and he goes, you know, I was the envoy in 2000, 2009, right? You know, I, you know, I've spent a lot of time there. I said, yeah, no, I, I get it. I respect that. Um, but I just, I think it's a bad time. I think the timing is bad. It doesn't make sense to go. And I think the, I think that you know why it's not a good idea. He said, no, you know what? I respect that. I think I understand. Um, he said, at some point I need to go on the ambassador, but if now's not the time, then you know what? Now's not the time and uh and you know we we you know said all right cool you know that was it uh that was like two weeks man that was like probably like in the first week of august uh that happened um and then you know you know going back to the folks that were in benghazi uh you know all five of those guys three of them were my classmates right and one of the guys uh was actually one of the permanent arso's in in tripoli with me and the other dude i went to high threat with so like all five of them, like I knew them all well and, uh, good dudes, great dudes for the most part, for yeah, the most part. They got, uh, any, uh, experience in high threat areas before Benghazi. So, uh, my, I call, <laughs> I call him my DSS spouse. Um, he sat right next to me during BSAC and, uh, he is this, <laughs> he is this, he is this big African-American dude from New York. And I am this really white dude from Seattle. And we were like best fucking friends, man. This guy's, this guy's a great dude. He's a former EOD tech in the army, uh, spent time with an SF unit, um, really squared away dude. Um, you know, that's, that was his background. Another one of the guys, uh, was, I think was a former Marine. Um, another guy was a military, uh, was a, was a captain in the army. Uh, yeah. I mean, yes, they, 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 get, they get a bad rap. When, yeah. If you watch the movie, and yeah, well, it's Hollywood. the movie's trash. Yeah. The movie's trash. So they get a bad rap. And, um, I heard, um, uh, from, people that know them not I think you're the closest uh person removed from them but that uh they were good dudes and I don't we haven't talked much about the military experience I've, I've heard one or two of them did have it and sounds like at least three did and um of the five yeah I, you know I would I would love four of, them. four of them had prior military experience see see that's something that's never said yep you know mark that down because I want people to know that that's uh yeah that's that's because you know Hollywood is Hollywood, and they made it the way it was. But yep, yep. Um, I love how many of them are still with DS. Because I'd love to have them on. I want to hear their story, and I'd like to have Nordstrom on at some point. I connected with him on Facebook recently, yeah. and uh, I can, I can connect you. I can connect you guys if you, if he if I, I can I can try to get with him. He's a he's a good dude, man. Um, so of the five that were there, uh, I know I think four of the five are still in DS. I think it's important that they get their story heard. And the reason it's not heard is because they are NDS and they want to, you know, they're not shouting from the rooftops, but you know, the, um, the movie portrays them in a fairly negative way. And I say fairly because let's face it, we're in these countries. Sometimes we're smoking hookah and fucking flip flops. Does it mean we can't snap to when the time comes and do what we have to do? And it's disappointing that 
it was reflected in that way. Yeah, so, I, mean, I mean, I'd like to get I'd like to get some some one of those guys or all of them at some point. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, and I think I think you're right. You know, Hollywood uh, they really they they portray things in a way and in, in a light. I, I will tell you um, from personal experience that our relationship with the agency while I was in Tripoli was fantastic. It was really good. Um, you know, we had a running agreement that, uh, you know, if I was out on QRF or if they were out on QRF and they needed me, I would respond to them like immediately. We, we ate dinner, the security element, we ate dinner with them like once a week. Um, and just, you know, we, we really had a pretty good rapport with the, with the GRS guys there. And, um, you know, it's a small community too, man. And, uh, you know, a couple of years later, uh, when I was in Afghanistan, I ran into, uh, one of the dudes that I, that I worked with there out up in Jalalabad, like, you know, just, and again, it's, uh, sometimes I think it's portrayed in a very, very negative way. Um, and I, but we're our own worst enemy as well. You know, diplomatic security is we want to be that quiet professional group and we don't ever toot our own horn about the things that we do or the good stuff that happens. And this is what happens to us. You know, when you're not going to tell your story, somebody will tell it for you in the way they want to tell it. Right? It's time that changes. Well, I that's mean, part of the reason you have this I mean, podcast. Um, that's part of the reason a, you do the podcast. Exactly. I mean, this is a guys that, have, uh, that I've talked to or – clearly experienced individuals that have done a lot more than those in CIS. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of the beauty and the demise of what it is, right? Like, um, you know, <laughs> I think if more people knew about it, it, it probably wouldn't be as cool, but, uh, you know, just listening to some of the stories that I, and I've listened to, to pretty much every one of the podcasts at this point, you know, just listening to the stories, um, from all the people that have been on, it's a really unique lifestyle, man. And I'm, I'm, I'm talking like agents to contractors to all the gamut, you know, like that, that world of what we're doing overseas and the people that are living and working that that's a really unique animal. Nobody does what we do, especially in federal law enforcement. No. If you want to get close to the federal government doing what we do at CIA and not because we we do some type of covert operations, but because they have a security unit that does similar uh, things that we do in some of these areas, Mm -hmm. but they also live the lifestyle. So even if they're not in security of the operations side, they, uh, they live the similar lifestyle that we do. Yeah. And, but there is no federal. And and of course for, for listeners, there's FBI, there's DEA, there's HSI. Sometimes there's some of these embassies, right? Secret service here and there, but we're at every fucking embassy. Yep. There's, a, there's not an embassy in the world that we're not at. There are some consulates we might not be at or some missions we may not be at, but we're at every fucking embassy in the world. True story. Um, so that was like, August, like, that was like middle. I left August 17th. And, um, and then so, you know, the, <clears throat> the attack happens in Benghazi and um, yeah, it was, it was pretty surreal, man. Like, uh, because so again, you know, like my best friend in DS is involved in this attack. Right. So I instantaneously call him. I'm like, you know, and I, he didn't answer the phone. And then he, he actually called me the following morning from, uh, from Germany when they had gotten evacuated. I said, well, I was like, man, are you, are you okay? He said, yeah, I'm good. You know, I said, what the fuck happened? And he's just like, man, it was great. He just went through the story and just, uh, 
That was crazy. It's, it's funny. He said, uh, <laughs> he said to me, he goes, you know what I was thinking about at one point? I was like, what man? He was like, I'm so glad that Jeff Carlson's not here because if Jeff Carlson was here, we would all be dead. Cause we'd be getting in the gunfight right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a tough, it was, you know what? It was a tough spot. I think they handled it pretty, uh, pretty admirably, uh, considering all things. Um, and you know what? Like you can always, you can always, uh, Monday morning quarterback it, you know, like a, like a, like a fucking Mark. But, um, ultimately, you know, those five dudes were there. They made the decisions they did. And, uh, you know, I think that each one of them at the individual level, having known all of them, uh, pretty, pretty okay living with themselves. Yeah. And, and given the way it was described, the way it was shown in the movies, like, listen, uh, if there are hundreds of people out there shooting and there's five of you and you don't need to give up your position because if yeah. you do, guess what? Eventually yeah. you might kill a couple of them. They're going to fucking yeah, but kill they're gonna you. Get man. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So if yeah. you're not, if you don't understand the laws of combat, that's an issue. And yeah. so it made them look like they were scared and fearless, uh, fearful. Yeah. But, uh, it's, I, I, I mean, you know better than I do, but from what I saw in the movies, like, all right, it makes them look this way, mm. but, I can articulate why they did that. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. It's different, man. It's just, yeah, it's, uh, again, you know, um, you can, you can armchair quarterback it all you want, but, uh, until you're, until you're pinned in a fucking compound in Benghazi, Libya with lots of unknowns running around your compound, lighting shit on fire, shooting, shooting at people. Uh, (laughs) you know, I think maybe it's time to, maybe it's time to shut the fuck up. Yeah. Tell me what's next in your DS life, sir. So, uh, I got back, I left, I left Libya. Um, I did some, I did some more TDYing, uh, when I was in Miami, um, both, uh, secretary of state visits and I went, I went to Oman for like three months. Uh, that was great. Uh, tell people where Oman is. So Oman is a, is a country, uh, it's in the middle East. Um, it is just North of Yemen. Um, North Africa or Middle East? No, it's in the middle East. It's, it's up in the, it's up in the Persian Gulf, uh, up in the Arabian Peninsula. Um, they are, so it's, it's, uh, it's one of the parts of the Straits of Hormuz, which is like where the strait gets like real narrow and Iran, um, Iran controls a lot of it. It's an interesting place. Uh, Real cool, real real laid back group of group of folks there. Uh, they practice a different version of Islam, um, and it's very very relaxed. So, as in different from Sunni and Shia. Yeah, there's Sunni or? Shia, and then there's like a third like predominant version. Really? Okay. I, yeah, and I forget the name of it. Um, but they're so they have a sultan, um, and okay. uh, yeah, it's it's cool, man. The, you got the beach. And you've got the desert and you've got the mountains all within like a 30 minute window of each other. And it's a real hidden gem. Um, it's a, it's a really cool country, very safe, uh, really, really cool place. So I, I was there, um, the ambassador was getting a protective detail. And so I was there to write like the SOPs and be her AIC. And, um, and that was cool, you know? So I got to do like some traditional RSO work while I was there a lot. That's, that's a very traditional post. So, um, you know, as opposed to my other experience in Libya, which was a very untraditional post, uh, it, you know, it was, 
it was completely night and day. And it was good for me to get that experience because then you actually see what the State Department really truly is for the most part, right? Like very few places are, are, are Libya, you know, very, very few places. Most places are Oman. Like that's most places. So it was good to get an experience like that. Um, and, you know, again, uh, got to work with an ambassador and she was, she was wonderful, man. She was like the, uh, the SCR at, at some offsite in Baghdad, I think like in 2011 or something like she got blown up in a convoy. So she was like all about security and she was, she was great, man. She was, she was one of the coolest people I ever met in while I worked for the state department. And, uh, I can't say enough good things about her. She was fantastic. Um, so I did that. I, I spent like, I think October, November, and most of December, um, there. And then came back and, uh, man, I, (laughs) the, uh, so one of the guys that was in Benghazi, um, him and I, like I told you, is like my DS spouse, him and I had agreed like early on that we were going to go to Afghanistan because, you know, again, at that time, your options were super limited for where you could go, right? Like you could go to SD or you could go to MSD or you could go to AIP or you could fight with other people to go to like somewhere shitty in West Africa. But it was like, all right, let me just do, let me just do AIP. Right. That's before this thing they call the L spec list. Oh man, that is right? such a good deal for those guys. I'm so entry, happy. Entry I'm, level. So happy. Yeah. I'm so happy for those guys. Cause you know what? That's legit opportunity, right? Like, Absolutely. That's a legit opportunity for them. Yeah. L spec means I learned this by the way, entry by level folks, entry level specialists. Exactly. And it gives you an opportunity to go to a uh, more traditional post rather than going to, like you said, AIP, MSD, SD, or uh, or a headquarters tour, yeah. and uh, what you and I know is that if you get out to a more traditional post, your opportunities to uh, promote and do th- a, a more expansive, mm-hmm. uh, you know, portfolio is uh, at these traditional posts. Sure. So that's what this does for us. But you and I didn't have that. Uh, luxury at the time. No, definitely didn't have that luxury, but you know what though, just because we suck shit doesn't mean that everybody else should continue to suck shit. Like I, I'm actually happy that they've revised it. I think it's a really good thing for the department. I think it's a really good thing for the junior folks too. And it gives them a much better experience and perspective on to what the department is. <clears throat> and ultimately, you know, that's what we should be striving for, right? Is, is, is better versions of what you and I were, Um, but so anyways, this dude and I, we had agreed to go to Afghanistan, right? Because, well, I didn't want to go to MSD and I didn't really want to go to SD. And I was like, you know what? And I also didn't be, didn't want to be one of those guys that, you know, because this isn't compulsory, right? At this point, you know, going to AIP was not compulsory. And I would say that if you broke it down into thirds, which it's not, it wasn't the case then, but just for the sake of the discussion, if it was, you know, like a third of the people would volunteer to go to Afghanistan or Iraq or Pakistan or wherever, whatever shithole you want to go to. A third would say, yeah, Roger, I'll go. Another third would say, hmm, I'll go, but only if you make me go, which, you know, the department wasn't going to make you go, but like they could severely limit your options, but like they weren't really going to make you go. And then there was another third that just basically said, fuck it. I'm not going, I'm not going to go. And they never were forced to go. And like, I think what for me at a personal me, um, I didn't want to be the guy in the follow car 
at year 10 where, you know, everybody was talking about, well, when I went to Baghdad or Peshawar or Afghanistan, whatever, you know, whatever thing I did my one year unaccompanied, I didn't want to be the guy that was, that was quiet. Right. That didn't Roger up for it. Um, and maybe that's a silly reason, but, uh, I think there's some, I think there's some value in that too. You know, I think there's some value in that for, for the younger folks that, that are coming on to DS and, and just the kind of the mentality of, again, you know, like be a fucking team player, man. Like, you know, you're going to have to suck shit sometimes and that's okay because it's, it's all, it's a finite thing. You know I mean? It's not going to last forever, but we all, we all need to suck it up a little bit. We all need to do our part. Um, so that's, that's where I was. That's why I chose Afghanistan. Uh, so, you know, went to, did the three or four months of training, um, up in DC and then, uh, shut out to Afghanistan. That was my next, my next assignment. And when you say training, you did the BRSO, so basic regional security officer course, which is your security management style course, how to be a contracting officer representative and, uh, lead leadership elements to the course and things like that. It's a good course too, man. I mean, you get to go. So So when I I was there, we went to Huntsville for, uh, the post blast, which was fantastic. Really good, really good training with ATF. Um, you know, did some, did some other good, good training. Uh, you know, some of it's, again, I think this is where, um, this is where the love affair with, with DS slash law enforcement starts to get for me at this point, like, uh, because I think what a lot of people don't realize is like how much paperwork you do, right? Like a lot of people don't understand that you spend a copious amount of time writing cables or writing reports or doing access or whatever it is. It's very, it's very administrative, right? And that's not just diplomatic security. That's, that's like period being an agent. That's law enforcement that's in general. law enforcement in general. In general, especially. In yeah. general. Uh, you know, it's it's very administrative. And, um, I think that's, you know, going through like the contracting officer representative course. And it, it's, uh, it's, it really starts to introduce you to the monotony at times of what federal law enforcement can be. So, but I got to Afghanistan and I was, uh, I was on the investigations team. And so at that point in 2013, um, investigations was split into two separate, two separate entities. There was the, uh, there was the backgrounds and the polygraph and the vetting portion. And then there was the CI portion, right. And the flyaway team, the PII version. And so I was on the PII CI flyaway team. Um, and to tell us uh, what you mean by PII and CII. So PII is, uh, so what is it? You have to Protective intelligence it. investigation. Intelligence. You're going to have to fucking edit that one out, buddy. So yeah, PII is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's been a while, man. Protective intelligence. PII. But CI is counterintelligence. Yeah, counterintelligence. So, um, and that was, that again, you know, I was a really, I was a really junior agent, uh, but I ran the CI portfolio in Afghanistan, right? Like it's a fucking big responsibility, man. So, uh, 
And again, there's a lot of CI issues in Afghanistan. So I had the walk-in program. I had rewards for justice. I had a fucking tip hotline. I supervised eight FSNIs while I was there. We had at the, at this point, I, I heard one of the guys on the podcast, uh, you know, a couple of days ago. Um, we, I think we had something like 45 FSNIs when I was there. I mean, the U S embassy in Kabul was ginormous in 2013, 14. It was huge. And we had a shitload of FSNIs. Um, so yeah, so it was, it was good, man. It was, it was really good. Uh, I, I worked for, um, the DRSO that we reported directly to, uh, is still a DS agent. And, uh, I'm going to give a shout out, man, on the podcast to Scott Messick. I'm gonna tell you something, man. I learned a shitload about investigations, I learned a shitload about embassy operations. I learned a shitload about life from Scott Messick. Awesome fucking dude. He was a supervisor in Houston when I got there. He wasn't my supervisor, uh, but we all knew that um, if our supervisor didn't perform when we needed it, especially when I first got there, because in my book I talk about my first guy and then my second guy who was awesome. Uh, Scott Messick was just such a solid fucking dude. Uh, so, so, so for Scott, Scott yeah, I'm gonna Scott ping him. I'm in contact. I think I have. I think I have him on LinkedIn or on Facebook. So I'm gonna I'm gonna ping him. Yeah, and, uh, he so is. Listen. He is. Uh, so he's a former former call former police officer in uh, Baltimore, and. Um, you know, just, it's, it's one of those things like where as a junior agent, you know, sometimes you know, you start doing something or you're given direction to do something. Right. And you're like, now why the fuck are we doing it this way? This is stupid. Right. Of course you shut your mouth and you do it. I can tell you on at least like four specific occasions where Scott would say, you know, this is what we're going to do. And that, 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 that. And I'm like, why are we doing it that way? And then, you know, like two weeks later, I'm like, okay, that's exactly why we're doing it that way. Mm-hmm. Got it. By the fourth time, I'm like, okay, yeah, I don't even care why I don't know anymore. Like, just just trust the man. He knows what he's doing. Uh, he was great, man. He was he was a fantastic mentor for me. Um, he really he he really really gave me a lot of really good knowledge. Um, any any care? I think Scott's just a good human. He is. in general. Yeah, he is. He's a really good dude. Uh, yeah, big, big ups to Scott Messick. So ran, ran CI, um, had an opportunity there to do some actually really cool things as well. Um, so this is probably like January of 2014 and I get a phone call one day and, uh, I'm sitting in, sitting in my office on the East side of the compound and, uh, you know, voices is Jeff there. I'm like, yeah, it was Jeff. Hey man, uh, do you have a second to chat? I'm like, well, sure, man. Who who's this? I said, hey dude, uh, my name's Mike. Um, you're are you on the east side or the west side of the compound? I'm like, I'm on the east side, Mike. Like, what can I do for you, man? <laughs> and he's like, hey, uh, can we meet in Bunker B? I'm like, there's only one skiff on the east side of the compound, and it's in Bunker B. So I'm like. So instantaneous, I'm thinking to myself, like, I don't know who this dude is, but he knows where Bunker B is. So if he knows where Bunker B is, like, all right. So I'm like, yeah, man, I'll meet you at Bunker B. I'll be there in like five minutes. So I walk down there. I'm sitting there waiting for a second. And these two dudes walk up. 
And uh, they're both probably like 6'2", about 230. I'm talking operator beard, like straight up, put the O in operator beard. Like, hey, man, I'm Mike. This is Devin. You know, are you Jeff? I'm like, yeah, I'm Jeff, man. What, you know, let's go inside. Have a quick chat. So we walk inside, we go back to the back. He's like, all right, man, check it out. My name's Mike. This is Devin. We're from Delta Force. So instantaneously, I'm like, like Delta Force, Delta Force. Now I had spent in, in Libya, <clears throat> we had we had two guys, two Delta guys that were that were based out of the annex that you know I had some contact with while I was there, as well, just by proximity to doing, you know, <clears throat> running around Ambassador Stevens. So uh, I, I had had some contact with them before. Now these two guys show up and they're like, Hey, we're from Delta force. So you know, instantaneously, like if, if people don't know what Delta force is, like use your Google box and look that shit up because there is nobody in the world. That's as shit hot as these dudes. Just period. No one, no one. No, no one. And I'm going to tell they you, go by CAG these days. They do go by, they go by CAG. Yeah, they do. But to your point though, most people know them by Delta. Yeah, and in my book, I refer to them by Delta. So continue because I've and, had experience with them as well. Yeah, and I'm going to tell you, man, I was uh, I was impressed in Libya just just the professional way that they carried themselves, and you know, I think when you get to a certain point, right, a pinnacle point, and they are the absolute apex of military direct action. I mean, they are. The tip of Ooh, some say, seals are not gonna like that. Well, buddy. and I mean, I, I've got some buddies that are seal. I, I listen, um, but they are unbelievably professional. Just, just a, it's a different breed of cat, man. And uh, so when they came in, they introduced themselves. I'm like, all right, man, what can I do for you guys? I said, hey, listen, we're getting ready to start this task force up again here in Kabul. You know, some shit happened in the last six months. We had to, yeah, da da da. We understand you run this hotline for rewards for justice. You know, can you give us some of the information that's coming in out of there? <clears throat> so I'm, I'm very upfront with them. I'm like, listen, that is a joint program between us and somebody else. And they are always going to have the right of first refusal. So I, I can't promise you anything. I think what the best thing to do would be, would be to meet with the local leadership here at the embassy and talk about it. I said, and I asked them, I said, you know, do you know them? <clears throat> Where are you guys living at? They said, well, we're living over at Kaya. They're living at the airport um, at the time. And I was like, okay. So, you know, having worked CI, like obviously my days are spent with the agency, right? Like most of my days are spent with the agency. And I mean, I'm going to tell you, you know, having some, spent some time with them in Libya and then some other places as well, I always walked away, uh, with my interactions with them on a very, very positive note, I always had wonderful interactions with them. Now I also understood where we stood on the totem pole and I understood what their mission was and what their objectives were. Therefore, very important. (laughs) Therefore, you know, I think we were good. Um, but man, the guy who was the chief of base when I was in Kabul, Oh, this guy was miserable. He was a miserable, miserable dude. He, uh, all these, all these poor case officers, man, that worked for him, they would have a party every single time that he would go on R and R 
they were, they were, they would have a party. And whenever the night before he came back, they would have an end of the world party. It was called the end of the world party because he was coming back from R and R. He was such an asshole, man. Like, so I have this meeting with CAG and I go and talk to their operations, their operations guy who I work with, I interface with pretty frequently. And I, I give him a heads up. I'm like, Hey man, here's what's happening. They came to me. They want this. Obviously, you know, this is our program. We're going to continue to do this, but whatever you guys don't want, we're going to feed them and they're going to start to develop contacts, right? Like this is the right thing to do. This is information that's just going to the, going to the, the trash bin where nobody's acting on this. So, um, he, and he was a cool dude. He was a former Marine. Actually, he was a former first sergeant in the Marine Corps. Uh, fucking great dude. Great dude. And he got it too. You know, like real team player. Great dude. He was like, Hey man, cool. I think we can make that work. You know, between me and you, we can filter out what we need. No problem. He said that we're going to have to talk to, we're going to have to talk to Jason. I said, all right, well, let's talk to him. So, we go in, we sit down and it's just like instantaneously, man. He's like, absolutely not. No fucking way. And I'm like, do you know them? Like, do you, do you even know what we're trying to do here? And he's like, I don't care. You don't, you don't understand and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, why don't you just meet with them, man? Just meet with them, have a conversation. And if you decide after your conversation that you don't want to do it, then we'll, then we'll go, we'll cross that bridge and we come to it. But to shut somebody down before you even talk to them, come on, that's, that's like, that's little kid shit. That's like fucking, what are you 13? So I finally convinced him to have a, have a discussion. And, uh, you know, he, he kind of blasts him a little bit in front of me for some other stuff that had happened. It moral of the story though. Uh, Tony, the guy who I had worked, the operations guy, we had, we basically worked it out that we were going to help them start task force cobble in 2014. And, um, and we did, you know, and it was cool. We had a, we had a pretty, pretty good relationship. We were feeding them information. Um, you know, at, at one point, uh, you know, they were, I was going to their briefing every Friday and then like on Saturday, <laughs> these guys, man, they were, they were crazy. Uh, they were doing all kinds of wild shit, but we would, we would play ping pong like almost all day on Saturday. Um, just good dudes, man. Just, you know, uh, guys that when you, when you listen to them and you talk to them and you, and you listen to their life experience, uh, you can, you can definitely learn a lot. You can learn a lot from that group of guys. I've never had, uh, a more positive experience with any member of the military as a civilian, uh, than I've had with the Delta guys that came down and, uh, inter- that was in her bill. And I had the, uh, personal personnel recovery portfolio. And that's when ISIS made their push and they were uh, there were Americans. Um, many of them were naturalized Americans, so Yazidi uh, Americans that uh, had came back to Iraq to marry their brides or whatever, and were fleeing ISIS. And these guys came in, and uh, I brought the consular officer in. It was me and the RSO, and I was really the only guy on the ground that kind of knew the atmosphere. So. Uh, watched the intel reports. I ran missions with my teams. I kind of knew what was going on. And, uh, the consular guy at the time, like there was a guy that was stranded and he didn't have any money and everything. And, and, you know, this consular dude is thinking, um, you know, well, he's in a Northern Iraqi town that's pretty well to do and he can get a taxi. And, and, uh, he didn't grasp the situation that no Mosul was taken over that ISIS took over 
and they, he can't pay for a taxi, and re, we reimburse him, which is what he wanted. And these two Delta guys were sitting there with like khakis and a, a you know the button down plaid shirt. Yeah, and uh, and I'm sitting war there because ter- war, war on terror apparel. You know it. Yeah, you know it. And so uh, they were sitting there, and they listened to this consul officer talking. And the consul officer, a great guy, by the way. He just didn't grasp. He was new. He didn't yeah. grasp the situation they were in. Sure. And these guys sat there so politely and listened and acknowledged, saying, okay, thank you, sir, and everything. And he walked out, and I apologized to them. I said, I'm sorry for what this guy said and doesn't understand. I don't know what to say. I obviously understand what the uh, you know, trend is like and what's going on. And um, you tell me how I can help you. And so basically I was their Intel, open source Intel source, because the people would call in. It's like literally I had people calling. Like I'm running away from fucking ISIS right now. Yeah. Like humping and puffing. We're running. I have yeah. two suitcases, my kids, uh, you know, we're running up this hill. And um, uh, so I would use that information. I would get that because I had these guys called Zervani and I don't, I don't want to, take over this part, but these are funny guys that were, uh, the ministry of interior police officers that worked mm-hmm. for, uh, um, Barzani, which is the president, the uh, prime minister of the area. And, um, and so they would translate for me, like, this is my cousin or this is person and this and that. And so I take all this information. I provided to the task force who had everybody in it, uh, including these two Delta guys, uh, and they took action. And, but anyway, these two guys were the most articulate, uh, yet well, uh, presented with interpersonal skills, uh, and understanding guys that I could imagine. Yet you could just tell that they were ready to fuck shit up. Yeah. Um, and I just, I try my best to describe them in the book without, um, and, and it's hard because they just, they have a skill set. They're diplomats, but they are fucking warriors, and it's really hard to describe them. Yeah, um, and Yeah, you know, yeah. It, it's funny, man. Um, so a co- you know, a couple of other things about about this group, and you know, so if you've ever done a walk in you know that 99% of the people that walk in are full of shit. You know that. Yeah. Tell us what a walk-in is real quick. Okay, a walk-in is somebody who comes to the embassy who wants to provide information, right? So in a place like Afghanistan, you know, we had, I had fucking 10 walk-ins a week sometimes, more, sometimes more. And these are people that just want to make money. That, and, but, but these were like shitbirds, these were like former members of Haqqani that were walking in sometimes like former members of the Taliban wanted to walk in. And again, it's all about money, right? It's not about that. They, that they want to be American. This, they, have, they don't give a shit about that. It's, are you going to pay me more than who I'm working for currently? Cause if you are, I'm going to talk to you and that's it. It's very transactional. So, um, but you know, like 99% of them are full of shit. So I get a guy that walks in and this is like you know, pretty early in 2014. I get a guy that walks in and he's like, I know where Bo Bergdahl is. So of course I'm like, all right, man, well, where the fuck is Bo Bergdahl then? He's like, 
you know, and he, he goes right into, and there's some things that you can tell about, uh, when you, when you start to, to walk them down this road, right? Like this is going to sound terrible, but it's pretty true. If they start to say things like, Oh, well, I just like, if I say, well, why are you here? And they're like, well, because I want to make my country better. And I'm proud of Afghanistan. You know, they're instantaneously full of fucking shit. You know that if they say openly, I'm here to make money, dude, this is a transaction. You're going to pay me for my information. And that's why I'm here. Then, you know, that person's real. You know that it's, it's different. It's a different vibe, right? It's a different feel. So I asked this dude, I'm like, you know, well, why are you here? And he, get, and he gives me the, I'm here to make money, man. I, I know where he is. I can prove it. And, but I'm here to make money and I need assurances. So I'm like, all right, well, fucking slow down turbo before we get to that point, before you get to talk to somebody that's not me, like, you know, we need to have a quick discussion. So I'm like, well, tell me, give me, give me a little bit of insight into what you know. And so he starts, you know, having read through the Intel reports and you know, some of the, some of the heavies that are in the region and who's doing what through Hakani and blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> and he starts naming names and, and like getting pretty, pretty specific into things. And I'm like, that's not normal. Like you would know that like having, and, and having interviewed hundreds of people over the course of the year, this dude was different. Right. So, uh, I'm like, all right, man, look, hang tight. Um, let me, you know, let me, let me go make a phone call. So I go, I make a phone call back up to, uh, the agency. They're clear. They're, you know, they're clearly interested at this point. Um, but task force Kabul also gets involved, right? Because they are the personal recovery unit as well in Kabul. Um, and you know, if you watch that Bo Bergdahl video, uh, you know, one of the guys that I worked with in, in, in task force Kabul is actually one of the dudes that's there. Um, it's pretty interesting, man. It's cool. Uh, and it's cool to, to see that part of history, you know, because you're kind of part of it and you see it unfold in a, in a way like that, where people, you know, the people that you know, that you kind of work with a little bit, get involved and then all these big dramatic things happen. Uh, and again, you know, this is the unique nature of what DS is like, how many fucking people get to work with Delta? How many people get to work with Cagman? You know, not many. Not many, man. It's a really small group of people that get to do this, right? Um, and it's it's one of the beauties of this job. Again, nobody else is going to have stories like that one, you know. And it's a silly story, but it's a, you know it's mine and this experience that I had. And there's not a lot of people that are going to be able to have it. So, um, yeah, man, it was it was cool. My my time in Afghanistan was interesting. Uh, I I I despised my time there. Um, it was, a, it was the toughest year I ever did, man. Uh, and I, I would even to this day, like I miss my daughter being born. Um, you know, it was really, it was really hard on my marriage. Um, and I would give back every dime that I made while I was there. If I could to have my ear back, I'll tell you that I'm glad I did it now. I'm glad I did it, but it was a tough year, man. It was a really hard year for me personally. Um, and, uh, I learned, you know, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about my marriage. I learned a lot about my personal life, um, while I was there too. Um, so I, you know, I can't be too mad that I did it, but it was a, it was a, it was a tough year, man. It was a hard one. Of all this podcast, the, uh, last 30 seconds could be extremely valuable to some people about family life. Um, 
Very good. So where'd you go from there? So from there, um, I went to Seattle. I went to our Seattle resident office and a lot of people scoff at this too. Cause they're like, wait a second, you fucking wasted your golden ticket. Yeah. To go to Seattle. Like, what are you thinking, man? So, uh, my wife was my, my wife gave birth to my daughter at the end of March. And so, um, you know, it was a timing deal where I couldn't go somewhere like crazy. I had to go somewhere pretty first world, right? Like just from a medical, like my daughter was going to be really, really little. And so I had to, you know, be kind of careful. And, uh, you know, looking at the list, it just, it just didn't look so hot, man. And my CDO was like, look, don't bid on London or Paris or Rome. You're never going to get it. And you know, like, all right, so looking at the list, uh, just wasn't really anything available that, uh, that I thought I was going to be competitive for. And then I looked at places with a language that maybe, you know, bumped me out six, seven, eight months, you know, with training, maybe, maybe it should be about a year by the time I could go out, it'd be a little different. And, uh, it just, none of it, none of it was, none of it was anything that we, that we really wanted to do. I grew up in Seattle. So, um, and I hadn't lived there since I left, since I went away to college. So I thought to myself like, man, you know what? It's a pretty good opportunity to go home. Uh, you know what? Spend a couple three years there, kind of do a reset and then, you know, go back out. And, uh, that's what we did, man. And, uh, I'll tell you, it was, it was really good. It was really good for me. Um, as we talked about before, you know, a lot of people go to the resident offices to, to do a reset. And, uh, and you can, you can do that, you know, you can definitely do that in DS because at that point, um, you know, I had done a year in Afghanistan, I had done Libya, I had done three months in Oman. Um, and I, I TDY'd quite a bit while I was in Seattle too. Um, but yeah, man, I was, I was, uh, I had spent a lot of time away from home and I needed to, I needed to get back to being a dad and being a husband and being, you know, who I was, man, because, uh, I think, a lot of, a lot of people fall into the trap of, well, I'm special agent. So-and-so I work for the state department. It's like, no man, that's not who the fuck you are. You're our fucking friend. You are a husband. You are a father. That is who you are. That is who and what defines you. This is a job that pays you money. This is not who you are. And I think a lot of people get caught up in that. And, uh, I, I don't, I don't think I got caught up in that, but I, I needed to really, I needed to reset, man. And, and it, Seattle was a real blessing for me. Valid point. Got to take a step back sometimes. Let's talk about the time, uh, probably the most uh, rewarding time in your career when you got to meet uh, a special, <laughs> as you called uh, Cody Perron. Yeah. And um, I, just, I don't want to talk about it too much. But we pretty much nailed that protection detail, and that was fucking hilarious because that guy uh, uh, is turned out to be a yeah. super perv on the Epstein train. Yeah. So yeah, let's talk he? about let's talk about our time uh, protecting Prince Andrew. I've yeah. been waiting for this. Yeah, you know what, man? So 
the the beauty like the beauty of ds2 is that like okay so obviously instantaneously and you probably this probably happened to you too like when you got back from baghdad um it's like hey cody so uh when can you go on a 90 day tdy to blah 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 blah, like whatever it doesn't end like it never ends and you constantly get pinged for stuff and you have to do it like you know there's only so many so many you know amount of people in the office somebody's got to support the mission got to do it uh so you know i picked and chose like i tried my best to pick and choose like where i went knowing that i'm gonna have to do this out of the other thing um so I was fortunate enough to go be your limo driver in the beautiful city of San Francisco with the Duke of York, a.k.a. Prince Andrew, a.k.a. Pedophile. The perv of England. Captain Pedo. <laughs> Captain Pedophile. Yeah, he's it's not funny. It's not funny at all. But uh, protecting him was interesting. And, um, well, so I picked him up in San Diego, uh, when there was actually a different AIC for the majority of San Diego and because he was there a few days. And so, uh, I picked him up on his last day there, flew in his jet, a private jet. First time in my time in DS that I've been on a private jet and we landed and Legaspi, who is a, uh, I know Joe. A, yeah. Yeah. I know, you know, Joe and Joe was, is great. He's been a uh, very, uh, great dude supportive of everything I'm doing. Great guy. And then, uh, I got in the vehicle and I'm pretty sure I shook your hand and said, Hey, what's up, man. And the guy was, you know, Prince Andrew was there. Yeah. And we, there we went. Yeah. Um, he, uh, you know, I mean, you get, you get a full spectrum of, of people that you do protective details on and DS, you know, and some of them are really good and some of them are Prince Andrew, man. And he was <laughs> fucking God. Like, I, I don't know if I ever met anybody who was so full of himself than that dude. Like, I don't yeah. think, I mean, can you remember how much shit he would talk about the people that yes. he met with? I mean, it was like, damn dude. I recall. I, I I mentioned this in one of the other episodes. I know. And uh, it's like the dude would go out and meet – who did he meet with? He met with Facebook. He didn't meet with Zuckerberg, but he met with Facebook. Time out. He met do with you, time out. Do you remember? Do you remember going to Facebook? Like I tell this story yeah. a lot. Okay, so we get to Facebook, and we go to like their main camp. They have like nine campuses. We go to like their main campus. Yeah. When you go hacker way, hacker way, when you go in, it's hard to put this into perspective for people. Like they've got a 40 foot wall of like snacks. And I mean, I don't mean like shitty snacks. I mean like really good, like really awesome snacks and it's free. It's all free snacks. Free. Anything you want, man, grab it. Yeah. What do you guys want, man? You want to go get ice cream? Oh, we got tacos over here. Hey, you want to hack it? There, there's people playing hacky sack over here. You want to play horseshoes? I think there's a game of horseshoes going on. There's a fucking corn. There's hole. a fucking beer tap. There's in a the middle of the day, whatever. Yeah. Like which it's insane. It's insanity. And like, uh, you know, you've got all these, like, uh, these really, really, really smart 25 year olds walking around in like flip flops and, and hoodies and you talk to them and, uh, they're like, yeah, you know, I'm a programmer for Facebook and whatever. And it's like, you, you start to talk to them and, and it's, it's interesting, man, because 
they think they're sticking it to the man by working for Facebook, right? By working for big tech. They think that that's what they're doing. What they don't realize at 25 is that they're working fucking 80 hours a week and living at Facebook because everything is free. Their food is free. The gym membership's free. The dry cleaning's free. Everything is free. And so, of course, they stay and they stay and they stay because it's awesome and they can play hacky sack with their homies on their downtime or play Xbox or whatever they want to do forever. But they are getting crushed yeah. by Facebook. And there was a, there's a free, uh, there's a few restaurants there. I, I mean, ice cream shops, restaurants, barbecue oh, restaurants where you can yeah. just go. It's hard to, and it's eat hard to for free. It's hard to explain. Yeah. And eat for free. And I asked, uh, one of our, uh, our contacts there, I had the advance introduce me and I asked like, well, how do you get away with this? How do you, how are you successful in having, and giving them all this free time? They said, well, we review them every three months. And so if after three months you get reviewed and you didn't perform, well, you're gone. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a novel idea. So this is, the beauty, this, is, this is the beauty of the private sector. This is the beauty of the private sector is that, um, you know, I mean, think back to, okay, and I, I mean, I'm sure the rack in San Diego was great. The rack in Seattle was wonderful, you know, and, but when I look at, when I look back at the supervisors, you know, along the way, Generally speaking, the person who's your supervisor is not the, the smartest or the most innovative or creative or any of these things. This is the person that has decided to fucking embrace the suck long enough to sit in the awesome office. So, like, I don't know how many times you were told to sit in the corner and fucking color, but I was told that many times, right? Like, don't rock the boat, stay inside the fucking lane, and just keep, just keep going, dude. And ultimately what that does is it stifles creativity and it stifles, I mean, it's, it's really counterproductive in a lot of ways, but I guess my point is, is that, you know, in the private sector, you are rewarded for being creative. You're rewarded for being a good worker and a hard worker and, and being productive and, and, you know, the smartest people, those are the people that get promoted. And it's wonderful to see that, that that's real, right? Because in the government, a lot of times, and that's the frustrating component for a lot of people. And I think it's why a lot of people leave. I think it's why a lot of good people leave is because they get sick of watching people get tenured and then just be a fucking slug. Valid point. Back to Facebook or back to Prince Andrew, I guess I should say. Um, he was, uh, well, I was the AIC for him, and it was one of my only domestic AICs. I've had two, and uh, that means agent, agent in charge. It was an escort TTL, so it was really me, you, uh, Legaspi as the lead advance, mm-hmm. and like we had a couple other people help people, out. Maybe. Like, yeah, kind of boot, yeah, yeah kind of strap hangers, man. Yeah. Nothing so an escort detail in uh, Scotland Yard. Yeah, in Scotland Yard, those guys were awesome. They were awesome. Those guys were awesome. They were that, awesome. That's the uh, the UK uh, protection guys, and they were fucking great. And so, for listeners, an escort detail, smaller detail, smaller version. You have a few guys as girls, and you have a uh, you know you might have a limo and a follow, uh, not a follow, but a uh, a, uh, a support car. Which yeah. Is, yeah, you have a lead sometimes. So anyway. Um, Prince Andrew would come out of these meetings. He was polite as can be in their face, and I know because I was in there with him. And you and I talked about this, and I'd be like, "What the fuck? What's up with this guy?" Yeah. And he would get in the car, and he would fucking bash them. Yeah. Just bash them to you couldn't imagine how he went from zero to a hundred. Um, 
And the one person he didn't bash was Sir Johnny Ives, which is the creator of the iPhone. That was his boy. Yeah. Now that was cool. That was a bad I was probably that was probably like maybe the coolest house. Like yeah, maybe in one San Francisco. Yeah, in San Francisco, up on Knob Hill. I mean, that was a badass house, man. That was an awesome house. Yeah. And we also got to see with Sir Johnny Eyes, we, we got to see the new Apple complex before it actually started. So right. he, you know, they were still breaking ground on it. There were some things that were developed. And uh, and Ives was great. I thought he was great. His his family fed us. His son came down to hang out with us and ask yeah. questions and talk shit. Um, and uh, you know that that was that was a good detail because the guys on it, you and Legaspi and and the other guys. Um, I mean, and I mean, he's he's a shitbag, as in uh, Prince Andrew. Yeah, yeah. shitbag. Yep. And. Uh, you know, I, I joked about this. I think it was on the Mike Perkins episode, and I said he called me into his room and he gave me a uh, signed copy of himself, a picture of himself. Yeah, man. And uh, it was first off, Jeff. It wasn't a signed copy; it was a printed copy. Of yeah, there was like a fucking. It was yeah, it wasn't even a real. Yeah, it was just a fucking print. And he's like, Cody, I, I've been in uh, motorcades for fifty plus years. You know, whatever age yeah, he was. Like yeah. And then you guys are the best. Yeah. It's like okay, the fuck, the fuck out, out, of of here. out of here. Do you remember? Do you remember? Uh, and I told this story a little bit in the beginning. And uh, he asked while we were in the motorcade. He says, uh, "Well, in our car." And he says, uh, "Is that the Golden Gate Bridge?" And I was like, "Ah, oh, yeah, I think so, sir. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure." And then you said, like, ah, I think uh, it might be the, uh, maybe the Bay Bridge." Yeah. No, Cody, it's uh it's a different bridge. Like, oh, okay, you know, it's a different bridge. And so he's like, How do you guys not know it's not the Golden Gate Bridge? And you're like, Well, sir, I'm from Seattle. And I say, like, I'm from San Diego. It's like, how are you getting us around? And I, I made a joke. It's like, well, sir, there's a bus in front of us. We're just following that guy. <laughs> Uh, yeah, man. Hey, he actually had a good laugh. Yeah. He treated us pretty well. He was he treated okay, us yeah. well. To our face, yeah, to, well, like again, you know, to your face, to your face, he's a good dude. Right. I'm sure behind our back, I'm sure he had some horrible shit to say. Probably was like these two fucking idiots don't even know where they're going. We didn't give a fuck. That was my last one, and I think you were also talking about getting out the same. Yeah, time that was as well. that was uh, that oh. was the last. That was the last PRS detail I worked. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I can't remember what the gift was that he gave to me. Um, but let this, I can't make this up. So the very first unga I ever worked, I had the Chinese foreign minister and they gave all of us a fucking thumb drive. Like that was their, (laughs) I can't make it up, man. So of course, of course I leave my thumb drive in my hotel. So, you know, the 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 cleaning lady probably picks it up and takes it. It's probably like they're probably in some bodega in Queens, like operate. You know, like they're probably like monitoring some bodega in Queens right now. But yeah, it's uh, it's that's that's kind of one of the cool things also about um, about doing that is that you always you always get some kind of keepsake usually from the detail. And uh, yeah, man, it was. That was that was funny. That that was a good time. That was the last. That was my last protection detail as well. Um, I left in July of 2017. So when I was in Seattle, I was attached to the U.S. Marshals Task Force while I was there. 
And we were just focusing on violent sexual offenders. And, um, you know, that's a, again, you know, there's, there's many different avenues in, in law enforcement, right? And federal law enforcement, regular law enforcement, all these things. And, um, you know, working on that Marshall's task force for the three years that I was in Seattle was probably of all the things I did in DS, that was probably the most rewarding thing that I did. Um, for the simple fact that you were making an absolute direct impact right into the community, um, in a very positive way. I mean, you're picking up people that just in my mind have no place in society. So, you know, these are the worst there. I would rather, I would rather hang out with somebody from the Taliban than deal with a pedophile. I mean, it's just the worst people in the world. So, you know, doing that for three years was, was really rewarding. And I think, um, it's again, it's one of the things that you can do as a DS agent, right? Like you can go to a resident office and, uh, you know, you can do some casework, but you can also be attached to these task force, you know, units where you can do really cool, unique things. Like, I don't know how many other federal agents get to do that. I don't think it's many, man. I don't think it's many. That's a good thing about being, uh, you know, we don't, DS doesn't have the most robust um, investigations capability or the statutes we investigate aren't. They aren't sexy. You know, they're not, they're not sexy. They're not going to blow the world uh, into, you know, uh, whatever, but you get the opportunity because you're kind of a periphery guy to bring your own skill set to whether it be FBI, JTTF, DEA, the HIDA task force or whatever, and you have this small skill set that has access to these passports and these visas and you have a lot of traffic and human traffic. That, that DS-11, there. man, that DS-11 has so much information. Absolutely. And it's such yep. a good tool. And people don't know, and, they don't really realize it, right? Until you, until you start to explain it to them, like, hey, man, like, have you thought about this? Have you thought about what people are putting on this DS-11? They're like, wow, I had no, shit, man, I had no idea. Yeah, and that goes a lot to the rack or the SACS cap- capability to articulate that to others because, uh, again, we're still not well-known. Or whichever agent you have, whether it's 1811 or someone with some continuity in the office to, to expand and build those relationships. And what people don't understand is while we have that small capability, that small skill set of passports and visa fraud, you know, they might use us a couple times a month or a week, but we're still – on the task force. So if they're going to go knock down a door and catch a guy, if they're going to go do surveillance, if they're going to go arrest a guy on the streets, we're still involved. Yep. And it's a fucking blast because you don't have all the responsibility, all the overarching duties of the case agent. You're just a guy fucking chasing the guy down and slapping handcuffs on him. Yeah. The federal warrant already been signed, man. It's already been signed. I don't yeah. need to, we don't exactly. need to articulate how we found this. I mean, we're, we just found the dude or the chick. Family. We found whoever we're looking for. That's it. Yeah. Done deal. Warrant signed. Here we go. You know, that's it. Um, that, yeah. I mean, and that's, that's real police work too. You know, that's uh, again, it's that definitely was not a white, a white collar, event that that three years with those folks that was uh that was some that was some fun good real police work that was getting done and uh i you know i really i wanted to hit on that man that's just you know it's one of those things again like i don't 
I don't know if, uh, if the folks that are coming on a DS really realize the kind of like this expansive, vast opportunity opportunities, plurally that you have as an agent, right? As a DS agent. And it's just a multitude of things. And, and, you know, you, you're doing everybody a real service here by talking about, you know, site security managers, ARSO eyes, RSOs, you know, just TDY type stuff, you know, talking to contractors, man, just this, this, this vast world of, uh, really unique experiences. Um, and it is not for everybody, but, uh, well, I'll tell you what, man, if you have a little bit of adventure in your gut, man, it's, it's, it's hard to beat. It's a good time. It's hard to it's beat. a good time. What are you doing now? And also, uh, what do you, what can you say to hiring managers out there about the skill set of DS agents? Those of us to get out that are looking for a job and to these hiring managers and or companies that don't have like real security or looking to expand their security program, what can you tell them about DS agents and what we offer their company? So, uh, yeah, like I left in 2017, um, and I, I've been really fortunate, man. You know, I, uh, I've worked for two really, really good fortune 100 companies. Um, I'm, I'm currently the regional director of security for, um, for a fortune 100 company and I cover Latin America and, uh, I'm, I just, I'm, I'm really blessed, man. I, uh, I found myself in a really good position and, and here I am. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm just really happy to be here. Uh, I think that the private sector is, is interesting. You know, one of the things that I was very sadly mistaken about when I was still an agent, um, you know, this, this follow car talk of, well, I would only leave if I made $250,000, blah, blah, blah. And I'm a DS agent and I'm going to get out and, all right, let's pump the brakes a little bit guys, because, um, yes, DS is awesome and you do a very unique job, but, uh, let's, let's, let's call it what it is. You are no different than the other, you know, 1000 people that are looking to do the same thing. Um, I think, I think, uh, there's a lot of fiefdoms that get, that get created in the private sector. And, you know, the FBI has their own, they, like they, they have several different corporations that like the head of the head of security for that corporation is a former FBI agent. So therefore they hire a bunch of FBI agents. You know, the secret service has their own fiefdom, you know, DS has a little bit of a foothold in other places. Um, but what I will tell you is this, that the mentality of what security is becoming or has become and in the you know, maybe the last like couple of years, really, it's very, very different. Um, you know, the days of your, you know, security, you know, your security folks being like the guy that sits and watches cameras and has keys and opens doors, man, those days are gone. You know, the expectation from my, from my company is that I understand the ins and outs of my business and that I can make, um, you know, I can make recommendations, uh, from a business standpoint to, you know, a whole swath of people. And these are very, very, these are very, very smart people. These are people, these are MIT grads. These are Harvard grads. You know, these are folks that are very, very astute. Um, 
and you really got to know your business. And the expectation is that you know your shit, you know, that's it. Uh, I think that, I think that people that come from DS are different, man. We're different. We're diplomats. So you can, you can flip that switch of, of wearing a suit and tie and, and, you know, being, being respectful while still disagreeing and giving your perspective yet being a good listener. And, uh, you know, that's the, that's the unique nature of, of DS. Um, and you're, you're worldly. We're, we're much more cultured version of a federal law enforcement. Um, I think it's really attractive. I know, uh, you know, I, I know several folks that are not DS agents that are very, very much looking for DS agents, right? That DS agent type. Um, I will tell you also, there's a few of us in the private sector, man, that we beat the drum. Dude, I am the biggest proponent of DS agents that, that want to get out. And anybody who's listening to this podcast that is an active DS agent, um, if, if you, if you want to talk and if you want to chat and, and have a real conversation about what it's like to transition, Hey man, reach out to me because I'm, I am here to talk to you and I will help you in every way, shape or form that I can, because that is what it's about. And I wish somebody would have done the same thing for me. Um, but it just didn't, it didn't happen that way, you know? Um, but if I could be of any assistance, uh, to anybody here, I, I would be happy to do it. Yeah. Well, Roger that. I, I think a lot of, uh, well, I don't know of a lot of DS agents that are, uh, in the private sector that are just really, uh, kind of run the game. I mean, we're still trying to get our way in there. Like I work for a DS agent now, I work for two of them actually. And, uh, you know, they said the same thing like, Hey, FBI runs this sector. Secret service runs this sector. I want to start a, a space for DS agents. I think that's changing, though, man. I think, I think that's changing. I, think so. I agree because ultimately, you know, a lot of these multinational corporations, um, and, and you know, like, again, I'm not, I'm not going to shit talk the FBI or the service, you know, like, look, they individually do, uh, you know, really good and cool things, but like, what the fuck does the FBI know about international security, man? Not a thing. Not a comprehensive, thing. comprehensive security management. No one does it better than a DS agent. You're talking about people that are responsible for the security and safety of U.S. personnel, information, and property at the biggest target in foreign countries, and we handle it. We handle a lot, everything from dealing with presidential appointee ambassadors to the lowest level uh, consular section employee, and we fucking get it done. And, and I think the interpersonal skills, the ability to adapt to culture, particularly if you are a multinational company, um, and the ability to adapt to, uh, you know, individuals of different rank and articulate yourself and communicate uh, effectively is vitally important. And so I, I know uh, that DSAs are getting out and trying to expand that, but that's, again, part of the reason for this podcast, I, I know we're only six episodes in, but down the road people will hear this like who are these fucking guys and girls that do this yeah you know and you're and you're right man um i mean you you hit it right on the head uh and we talked about this a little bit before you know we kind of hit on this in the beginning of the podcast you know those those interpersonal skills are um they are so critically important and uh you know 
the, the ability to turn it from Baghdad to San Diego or from Tripoli to Seattle or from Afghanistan to Seattle, you know, like you got to be able to do that. Right. Because, um, you know, the private sector is not the government. <laughs> it is not, not the government. And, uh, you know, you, you need to, you need to understand that, uh, and it's not, it's not handling people with like little kid gloves, but it's understanding the scope of what you do and who you work for. Right. And, and what the, what the, uh, what the objectives of your business are, you know, my, my CEO, um, I spend quite a bit of time with because I, I work his, his EP detail when he travels to my region. And so we spend quite a bit of time together when he comes to my region. Um, you know, I mean, he is guy is on it, man, 16 hours a day on it. I mean, hardcore on it. And he is a unique individual and, uh, but he's no different than the ambassador. You know, if like, if, if, you know, you have to go brief an ambassador on security situation, incident, whatever, 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 whatever's going on. Right. So you know, you know, this going into it Well, I need to be short, sweet and to the point, cause he has a very limited amount of time. Right. So I'm going to go to him with what the problem is. I'm going to tell him what my solutions are, what his options are. And then my recommendation, I'm going to keep it to a 10 minute conversation because he doesn't have more time than that. And he doesn't care about the nuts and bolts. It just, look, what's the problem? What are the solutions and what's your recommendation? What is it? Stick to that, right? My CEO is no different, man. He's no different than any, than some ambassador. And this is, this is kind of the beauty of, again, being a DS agent, right? Having that experience of briefing an ambassador when you're in Vietnam, this, that, and the other thing is going on. So I just want to give you a heads up. Here's what we're doing, right? Here's my recommendation. Here's how we go. Boom. And we go. This is uh, very much, very much the same in the private sector. I can tell you um, on multiple occasions, multiple occasions, I have reached back to my DS network uh, in the private sector and just, you know, like, so at this point I've got, I've got 15 offices that I look after in the region, right? Well, I mean, you know, this is like, uh, I've got, it's 13 different countries in, in and around Latin America and the Caribbean. So, I mean, I stay in contact with the RSOs and all these places, man, you know, and it's just a simple, like, Hey man, you know, this is who I am. If I don't, if I don't know them, I usually get somebody to introduce me to them that does know them. But, um, I, I can't tell you how helpful they have been as well. Just kind of keeping me up to speed. And, you know, if, if I want to talk or have questions or if I come and visit, I usually make it a point to go, you know, grab dinner with them or just touch base, man. Just, just touch base. Just keep that, that line open. Um, because, you know, obviously, uh, professionally they could help me, but, you know, additionally to that too, I want to know, I want them to know that I could also help them, you know, down the road, you were not going to be a DS agent forever. That, that that train is going to end someday. And when it does end, you know, dude, give me a shout, man. Let's, let's talk. Let's talk about what's the reality. There's an organization called OSAC. That's the collaboration between the private sector and the U.S. government, particularly the State Department, Diplomatic Security, in which we uh, work together to solve problems and issues and connect. And uh, OSAC is very valuable. Cool, man. Well, shit, we're almost pushing three hours. It's a long time, dude. It's a long time. Well, we had, long time. We, had, we had a couple breaks in between. But we had a couple breaks. Well, that and we had, we, had, we had round number one as well. 
We had round number one the first night, which was two weeks ago, and we talked probably 20 minutes before we started recording. That's true. True story. Um, yeah. Well, you're a good storyteller. Did a Thank fantastic you, job. I appreciate it. It was Thanks, great sir. to be here, man. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me, man. This is uh such a cool, such a cool thing. I'm I'm so glad that you are doing this podcast. I think more people uh, man, I think, I think there's so much information to be had on this podcast and that it's really awesome that you're doing it for people, man. Um, just, and, and the wide swath of people that you have on here too, you know, from like real senior agents to me, um, to contractors, to whoever, man, uh, it's just, it's such a good, invaluable resource to people. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm really honored to be here, man. Well, you kicked ass, man. Hey, I'm going to stop recording now, but sit tight. Thanks, brother. Thanks for coming on. All right. Thanks, Jeff, for coming on the show. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, especially to Buffalo Trace, for providing me some tasty libations during this podcast. If you're interested in learning more about the Diplomatic Security Service and those special agents and what we do, I have a book out. It's called Agents Unknown. True Stories of Life as a Special Agent in the Diplomatic Security Service. It is online, over 100 reviews, and nearly all five-star reviews. So go get your copy. It's available in paperback. It's available in Kindle. It's available on Audible, where you can listen to my sweet voice speak for five hours. My website, CodyPeron.com, also has uh, my YouTube videos, which are primarily directed to those of you aspiring DS agents that are listening to this podcast. Um, also have my Instagram and some social media on there. Instagram is my primary. Uh, my handle there is agentsunknown underscore book. But again, it can all be found on my website. And I do some blogs that I say after every single podcast, I need to get better on the blogs. So eventually, I'm going to have to start holding myself accountable. But in the meantime, thanks again. Enjoy your week, and I'll catch y'all next time. Thanks, y'all. Out. Thank you.